get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Neighbors comes back to the near wing. Butch Navich keeps it in. Finds Neighbors. Good stick to the near side for Thomas. Now to Butch Navich. Up to the blue line to Letty. Slap shot in front. He scores! Neighbors! Right in front again. 3 nothing Blues. 9-0-1 to go. Period number one. Chip off the glass by Falk. It's out of the zone. And then Butch Navich. He outstretches power. Two on the goalie. The Blues shoot. They score! Butch Navich to Neighbors. Neighbors gets the goal. And the Blues up 6-3. 15-22 to play, third period. Well, another one for Jake Neighbors in this game in his ninth now of the season. He's closing in on 10 goals curves, and we're only a quarter way through the year. He got the promotion to get up to this top line a few games ago, and he's been nothing less than spectacular in all of them. Yeah, he's done his whole life. You know, it's just not camping out front of the nets, knowing when to get there, knowing when to take that the goalie's eyes away, which he did in my shot tonight. It was a great screen by him, but um, timing too. Timing how to, to turn and and, uh, and find the rebound, and you know, it's just not camping out. It's a, it's a skill that he obviously has, and but more than that too, I think he He's, uh, he's, like I said, he's winning his battles. He's skating hard. He's taking D-man wide. He's protecting the puck. So, you know, he's been our best player as of late. That, of course, is Brayden Shen. That also was the audio from last night where the Blues took down the Buffalo Sabres 6-4. to Welcome, everyone, into BK and Ferrario alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis. I'm Alex Ferrario as we are live at the Centene Community Ice Center at our E&B Granite Studios where the Blues are practicing prior to hopping on a plane and headed back out onto the road. Last night, though, Jake Neighbors, one of many stars in that game for the Blues. Jordan Cairo was one of them. Braden Shen was one of them. Jordan Bennington was another one. We'll talk about all of those throughout the day today. But we start with Jake Neighbors, T-Bone, who scored his ninth goal of the season last night. This guy now leads the Blues team in goals for the season. He overtook Pavel Buchnevich and Robert Thomas. No coincidence, he's playing on the line with those two guys. But on top of it, He's now got a 28.1 shooting percentage, which is 10th best in the National Hockey League. And to put this into perspective, he's got 32 shots on goal on the season. Right up there with him of the Arizona Coyotes is Michael Carcone, another guy who's got a 32 percentage, 10 shots on goal in 30 or 10 goals with 31 shots on goal. He is one of the people that the NHL has labeled a star on the rise. And that is exactly how you have to label Jake Neighbors. He not only is able to dictate the game with his physicality, he's able to dictate the game with his hockey sense, but now he's doing it in the shape of a unicorn. And we all love unicorns, T-Bone. They're the mystical creatures. Who doesn't love a horse with a horn on his head? I said this on post-game last night, and I talked about it with Joe Vitale. He is the modern-day power forward in the NHL. The nine goals that he has scored this season, according to uh, NHL Edge, that analytics website that they have, all nine of his goals 
have come between the face-off dot and the goal crease. That is the that is the kitchen for power forwards in the National Hockey League. The the Matthew Kachucks, the Brady Kachucks, the Tom Wilsons. Jake Neighbors is making that his home. And it is so difficult to find power forwards in the National Hockey League today that are willing to take those bumps and bruises, score those types of goals, and not just score them, but have continued success with them. I know it's still early in his career. I know he hasn't even hit 82 games yet in his NHL career. But the Blues are making a power forward right now, and this is a power forward who is nowhere near his prime. And to me, this is a massive benefit for the Blues near future having somebody who's established as a power forward. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more with you because look at what they wanted from anybody on this team the last, what, two, three years? What if I feel like I've heard Craig Bruby say in every post-game presser in that time frame, we need to go to the front of the net. We need to go to the front of the net. We've got to go to the dirty areas and score goals. You know who does that very, very well? Jake Neighbors. And I thought it was great. Not just him scoring when his dad was being interviewed on Valley Sports Midwest, but they asked him, hey, break down this goal. And what did he say? He went to the front of the net where they want him to go. Jake Neighbors has embodied what Craig Berube is telling him. You know, Jamie says it all the time. Craig Berube gives you the test with the answers on it. Can you just follow what is being said and you're going to play? You're going to have success here in the blue system. Jake Neighbors is doing that. You're right. He is the modern-day power forward. He's playing great hockey right now, and he's a guy that we've talked about it can be kind of that Swiss Army knife. He kind of feels like, I don't want to say he's he's not here yet, but he is starting to kind of trend towards this, of being the guy that, hey, you need to get a line going, put him on that line. Why? Not because he's got the best shot in the world, but because he's going to go to the dirty areas and he's going to help that line out when they need when they need it to get to the front of the net. So I, I've i been so impressed with Jake Neighbors so far this year. I, I think if Craig Berube could go into a laboratory and construct the perfect hockey player, Jake Neighbors would walk out of that laboratory because he doesn't have the best shot, but he's going and doing what needs to be done to score goals. Everybody remembers all of the hype around this past year's draft and wondering where the Blues were going to select and who they were going to select. And we had a lot of conversations about finding a way to get Ryan Leonard because Ryan Leonard is a power forward. Ryan Leonard's a guy that everybody wanted. Well, Ryan Leonard just got drafted seventh overall by the Washington Capitals. That's the player that Jake Ryan Leonard is what Jake Neighbors is now. And that's the part that is so crucial. And why when Craig Berube said this guy's going to be a massive piece of our future, it's because of that. You don't find power forwards in the National Hockey League. I want to play a cut from Joe Vitale because I heard him talking about it earlier today on the opening drive with Randy Carricker, uh, Brooke Grimsley, and Kerry Davis. And Kerry asked Joe what he thinks the, the ceiling, the projections are for a Jake Neighbors. Take a listen. You know, I think that one day he's going to be he's going to be a 35, 40, 40 goal scorer. I really mean that because, you know, he comes in with so many tools in the National Hockey League. He was a point-munching guy in junior. He's got a great knack for the net. He's got really quick hands. And he understands, you know, one thing about this game that has not changed is that if you want to have success, if you want to have offensive success, you've got to get to the front of the net. By no way, shape, or form am I comparing this player to the two two guys I'm going to bring up right now because, frankly, they're night and day better than Jake Neighbors. It's where they were drafted that will tell you that. But both Kachuk boys, if you look at the way that their careers started, very similar to Jake Neighbors. So Matthew Kachuk's first season with Calgary, 13 goals and 48 points in 76 games. Now, Jake Neighbors didn't play the full season. Jake Neighbors was up and down. The next season, 
he scored 24 goals in 68 games. And the next season was when he hit 30 goals. So his third full season in the National Hockey League was when he hit 30 goals. Brady Kachuk, 22 goals in his first season, 21 in his second season, 17 in his third season, and his fourth season, he hit 30 goals. Both of these guys are power forwards. Both of these guys set up shop in front of the net. Joey's not crazy saying that. Now, 40 might be a lofty expectation, but Jake Neighbors right now is playing like a 30 to 35 goal scorer because you don't find these power forwards in the National Hockey League very often. Yeah, I I would be cautionary right now to jump even the gun at 30 goals, but if he continues to develop and continues to stay with this kind of going into the dirty areas mindset, then yeah, he could absolutely be that kind of a player for the Blues um, because... Like you, like you said, there are not a lot of power forwards in the NHL. We were talking about this before the show. How many guys can you really categorize that as? Not just power forwards, because there are some power forwards, but power forwards that have the potential to be 30-goal scorers or are 30-goal scorers in the NHL. It's not a lot of them. And, and, and you're probably thinking, like, well, why is that? A lot of guys come into the league and they want to – they want to play that offensive mindset with speed. Everybody not with wants the, to be a sniper. Yeah, nobody really wants to go into that, get it near the goalie's face, get inside the crease, try and get those hard-working goals. Why? Because it is hard. It, it takes a, It is a grind on your body for 82 games yeah. to go in there where there are tree trunks trying to knock you over. But Jake Neighbors says, hey, if I'm going to make it here, Craig Berube has told me this is what I've got to do. And that's exactly what he's doing. I, this is... I think this is kind of what they were hoping they were going to get from Jake Neighbors last year, which I thought was too too much pressure to put on him as a rookie. Yeah. But now that we're here in year two, you're seeing what they saw in Jake Neighbors. Because after year one, I was like, yeah, you know, maybe 10 goals. Like, he's probably – maybe he can sneak into the top nine, probably a fourth liner. Man, after this year, it it is fair to kind of go – Man, what is the ceiling for Jake Neighbors? Because it's certainly a lot higher than I thought coming into the season. And, and, and I loved what Chen said. It's not that he just goes and stands there. He knows when to go to the front of the net. And that goal that he scored last night was the prototypical of it. He was up at the faceoff dot, but he saw the play developing and went straight to the net and was standing on the doorstep. But real quick before, because there's one other player I want to talk about. Um, but th- first of all, he just scored two goals last night. That's against Buffalo, who's got Rasmus Dahlin and Owen Power, two very highly touted defensemen in the National Hockey League. Everybody loves Dom's analytics. Go check out his analytics for those two defensemen. Jake Neighbors just scored two goals against one of those guys. You got two goals against the Blackhawks. Man, not that good. The the Nashville Predators, one of the team that is viewed as having a very good defense. He picked up a goal against that one. The LA Kings, he picks up a goal with Drew Doughty on the other side. The New Jersey Devils, the Pittsburgh Penguins, he's scoring these goals against tough defensive teams. And that is just a guy who was only in his second full season in the National Hockey League. So outstanding night for Jake Neighbors and really very optimistic of what he's going to provide this Blues team down the stretch. If you're a team that's ho- or if you're a fan that's hoping this retool is done faster, Jake Neighbors is going to be a massive reason why. So is Jordan Cairo. And it's weird because he didn't score yet again. Still in this gold drought schneid that he's on. Eight games now, I believe. Yeah. But he changed that game in 24 seconds last night. Greg Berube calls a timeout after Buffalo ties it. Very animated on the bench. Even a guy who's dealing with a sickness right now. Probably and made him feel better. Probably. You get that phlegm out of your voice by yelling at everybody. 24 seconds, Jordan Kyrou made the play with Kevin Hayes happen and the play with Braden Shen happen. So no questioning how good he was offensively. But, and it's odd to say a but right here, 
He took four shifts in the third period. The only player that took less shifts than Jordan Cairo was Sammy Blay. Now you see that and you say, well, yeah, of course, he, he, defensive liability, and you don't want to put him out there. Something or nothing, T-Bone, that Jordan Cairo in a game where you were up by three goals at the time, then two, Jordan Cairo was getting put on the bench, and Torpchenko and Oscar Sundquist were taking shifts ahead of him. So, typically, I would probably say, even if it is a three-goal game, you still would like probably Cairo to be out there, especially this year. I don't think he's been as much of a defensive liability. He hasn't. Um, he's still, he still is, I would say, but he's not like... What, what did we say coming into the season? The goal is, hey, can he be, like, average defensively? I think he's gotten pretty dang close to being that. I'm going to say nothing, though, and, th- and this is why. I saw this in uh, Matt DeFrank's piece today in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Last night, the Hayes, Shannon, Kyrie line had the most defensive zone starts among the forward lines. And you're going, well, of course they did. It's, it's Braden, Shannon, Kevin Hayes. Why would they not be out there? Guys, I don't think a line with Kyrie, even if it had Shannon Hayes, if Hayes was here last year, would have had that many defensive zone starts last year because Kyrie was such a defensive liability. I, I think that stat right there that I just read, forget about the four shifts in the third period, definitely probably did want to get more defensive-minded. And honestly, I'm kind of okay with that, even though Kyrie has been better defensively this year. You didn't need a game-breaking goal there. I, I don't... I, I don't mind it at all. I think it's nothing. I mean, the fact that he had the most defensive, he was a part of a line that had the most defensive zone starts in last night's game is very telling to me. It tells me that the Blues feel more comfortable about Jordan Cairo being out there defensively. Maybe not so much that they want him out there in crunch time, but that's fine. If he's at least average to where they can throw him out there for shifts periods one and two while the game is still close, and then when they want to really lock it down, they move away and go more to the defensive guys like an Oscar Sundquist, uh, to a Jake Neighbors, those type of guys, then yeah, I don't really care. But long as he is capable in those ga- during the time in which the game is close and is helping out offensively like he did last night, that was like the ideal kind of game for Kyra. Would you like him to score goals? Yes. But he was still helping even though he didn't. He was fine defensively. He was part of a line that was had the most defensive zone start times. And in the third period, you wanted to shut the door down. So it's okay to kind of pull him aside and go more to your best defensive forwards. I, I think this is nothing. Yeah, it's absolutely nothing. And you could sit there and be like, oh, wow, they, they sat him there late in the third period. Yeah, because you were up by two goals and you wanted to close out that win. Look at who was on the ice. Sunquist, Torupchenko, Jake Neighbors, which, again, is telling you the, 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 the faith that they have in that player. But Jordan Cairo in all intents and purposes, did his job in that second period. Third period, you find ways to get more opportunities, but then late, you 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 you, you tighten the stranglehold on the opponent. You kill him off, and that's what the Blues accomplished last night uh, with those guys jumping in there for Jordan Cairo. So really good game for Jordan Cairo, even better game for Jake Neighbors, and the Blues are back in the win column, 5-0 and against Eastern Conference teams, and now they go on to play the Arizona Coyotes tomorrow night, which we will have your first community credit union pregame starting at 7 o'clock. Chris Kerber and Joe Vitale with puck drop against the Arizona Coyotes. Plenty more Blues conversation coming your way throughout the afternoon, but coming up next the Cardinals are headed to the winter meetings and seems like there's still a lot more work to be done from the Cardinals side they want to add bullpen help how many do they actually need to make you optimistic about this upcoming season we'll discuss that and one name that's popped up in the rumor mill next on BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN we're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN
So the Cardinals are headed to the winter meetings and still have some things to be checked off of that checklist. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario, as it's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. What's on that checklist? We've all discussed a lot about still going out there and, if you can, make a trade for a glass now, for a Dylan Cease, bring in a higher leverage starting pitcher to add to an already strong at least for the inning's sake of the conversation, rotation. But we still have yet to see moves on the bullpen. Hold on, let me rephrase that. The Cardinals did re-sign Wilking Rodriguez. So they did get something done for their bullpen, T-Bone. And they claimed a couple of guys. So frankly, they're almost there with this bullpen being completed for the upcoming season. You are truly the worst. I, you know I really am. I, I'm, I'm the Toby of the Cardinals conversation. But in all reality, that guy. I know, you you got to fix this bullpen. You have to exit Nashville from the winter meetings if you're the Cardinals saying, our bullpen is stacked, and the only thing left for us to accomplish is see if there's a trade out there to make our rotation more dangerous. And this is from John Denton of MLB.com, our Cardinals insider here on 101 ESPN. With the heavy lifting already out of the way, St. Louis can now focus on fortifying its bullpen, exploring the trade market, and possibly unclogging its overcrowded outfield at the winter meetings. That's where I would start this with, T-Bone. I wouldn't look at the free agents. Frankly, the free agents might be there by the end of the winter meetings, and you can find out if there's discount players. I'm looking at teams that want Tyler O'Neill and Dylan Carlson and are willing to send me bullpen pieces that I can hopefully cash in like I did with Giovanni Gallegos because then you're getting more control, then you're getting more upside, and you're not hoping, you're not using that hopium with these free agent pitchers that they click like they've done in the past, I would be trying to upgrade my bullpen via trade and then figuring out what else needs to be done after the winter meetings. Yeah, I, I would be exploring every avenue. And when I say free agency, too, it's not just the, oh, the Jordan Hicks route. The I mean, they're not in on Josh Hader, but it's not just that like $10 million plus dollar arm per year, guys. There's a lot of good relievers, some of them that we probably have never really even heard of as baseball fans, that you look when they sign them, you'll look at their baseball reference card and go, oh, hey, that guy looks pretty good. That guy's pitch, been around the league a little bit. Um, so I think at the winter meetings, they're probably, my guess is that they are going to really be hitting that trade conversation. I, I, I still am skeptical of what they could get for Tyler O'Deal in return. I know everybody that covers the team seems to be believing that there's still some value. Maybe you can try and flip him for a project yourself. So you give them Tyler O'Neill, a guy that's proven it for one year, and you get a bullpen arm that's proven it for one year and has got decent stuff. So maybe they're able to do that. I think Burleson's the guy that I'm highlighting going into the winter meetings as like the top trade chip that they're probably going to bring to the table because I'm skeptical that they want to move a Gorman, even if it is for not even a bullpen arm, but for uh, Dylan Cease in, yeah. in the rotation. Burleson's the kind of guy that you could probably trade. You trade away a guy that's got years control. He doesn't really have much of a position, I would say, here in St. Louis. Like, if I said today, looking at the roster and projecting it going forward, what is Alec Burleson for this team? Fourth outfielder? Maybe not even that. Probably like the fifth outfielder, but is a left-handed bat that hits for contact coming off the bench, which that's a nice thing to have. Don't get me wrong. But if I can trade him and get a reliever in return that's got some control, that's got some pretty good stuff that you can slot into your kind of seven, sixth, seventh inning mix. I think you have to explore that if you're the Cardinals. I, I think they've got to be looking. I don't think they've got to do all this by the winter, but by the end of the winter meetings. 
but they've got to start kind of laying the groundworks and figuring out, okay, who are the two guys we're going to get? I don't think you can go into next season just getting one and saying, okay, we've got insert free agent or trade name here in our bullpen and Gio and Ryan Helsley because I have serious questions about Gio after what I saw last year. You should treat relievers, when you look at their baseball reference page, you should treat the very last year as the year in which you are projecting them forward. And what I mean by that is though Gio has been very good in his time here in St. Louis – Wipe that all to the side in your projection and go, okay, he had a down year last year. Let's plan on that going forward. I would treat relievers like milk in the fridge that doesn't have a date on it. You know, I, I would be very cautious at because oh, relievers go that. relievers go up and down so often that I would be looking to get somebody else to slot ahead of Gio this offseason. In fact, I'd get two guys to slot ahead of him. Okay, well, first of all, don't waste that milk, even if it doesn't have a date on it. If it smells fine, just drink it. There's no worries there. See, what worries me about – it doesn't worry me – I don't know if I would trade Burleson for the bullpen arm because I I feel like Burleson might be that piece that can get you that other starting pitcher. And I know you can't hold a guy back in hopes that you get another trade done. That's the conversations you got to have. If you feel like you can have him, then Burleson doesn't go. That's And I don't believe Carlson or, or, Burleson, or, Carlson or O'Neill have that much upside that could bring you back something. But a team might be desperate enough to get one of those pieces and trade you a bullpen arm that they don't know if they need. And that's what Giovanni Gallegos was. Giovanni Gallegos was a guy that the Yankees looked at and were like, yeah, we don't really know if we need this because we've got other arms in the bullpen right now. And you were able to trade a Luke Voigt, and they got some good years out of him, and you've got Giovanni Gallegos. That's why I would go O'Neill and Carlson there before I would even touch the Burleson route because I think Burleson might be more valuable to you in a bigger trade. And if you don't get anything done that route, if it doesn't seem like Steam's picking up, then that's when you kind of explore trading a Burleson for a bullpen arm. And one bullpen arm that popped up in the rumor mill, T-Bone, that you sent us yesterday is the Cleveland Guardians' Emmanuel Class A. And this is a 25-year-old reliever, closer for the Cleveland Guardians, one of the best closers in the American League over the last couple of years. He's been an all-star back-to-back seasons, but he's also under control for, what is it, the next four seasons? This coming year, he's got two and a half million, four and a half million the year after, six mil, and then he's got a ten million club option for the following two seasons. So you'd be acquiring a closer, not just a bullpen arm, a closer for the next five years. I would love to do this, but this seems like you're trading Nolan Gorman to get him. Could you get him for Alec Burleson? Probably not. Cleveland's going to want a little bit more than that. But this is the type of this is the type of trade that I don't care what my rotation looks like. I'm good enough with my rotation if I'm bringing this high of an upside bullpen arm in. Yeah, see, I wouldn't make this trade at all because of what I said about bullpen arms. They're so – they fluctuate so much. But he's not costing you anything. I mean – Depending, no, on, but depending on the trade cap. I was going to say, he's not costing anything in terms of money, but he probably would take a Nolan Gorman-type return. Really? I mean, he's got three years of – or excuse me, five years of control, essentially. If he pitches really well, he's got five years of control at like $35 million. That's a hell of a deal if you're any Major League Baseball team. And when you look at him – He's one of the best closers in all of baseball. So, yeah, I think he would take a Nolan Gorman-type return. It is interesting that his name popped up because we've been talking about relievers. And when I first saw it, I'm not going to lie, when I saw Jeff Passon reported this on ESPN, I was like, ooh, Class A is available? And then I read his contract. I was like, oh, that's going to cost a lot. So, I, though in theory, yes, he is the kind of arm you're looking for, swing and miss, high-leverage-type arm. 
he's not the guy for the St. Louis Cardinals because he would cost a lot. He would cost more than Alec Burleson. I, I looked up at uh, trade simulators, the baseball trade simulator website, and I was yeah. like, okay, what would it be? And like, I looked at Class A. He's like worth 51 in terms of what they view as the value in terms of things. Just to give you an idea, Burleson is a five value. So like, it would take a lot to package around them just to get Class A. It would probably take a Gorman. He's not the guy for the Cardinals, even though I do love him personally. The hard part is this is the type of pitcher you need to acquire. Maybe so many years on their contract that you have left or the control that you have. Maybe it's somebody who's got like two years of control. But I don't want – the reason I don't want the guys that are available via free agency at least to start it's because those guys kind of fall into the same category of what you got. You've got a Helsley, you've got a Gallegos, you got a Jojo Romero. All these guys look like they could be something for you, but you're kind of you're you're, you're on hopium. This type of move, and I don't know who else would be available. We'll find that out once the rumors start up in the uh, winter meetings. These are the types of moves that the Cardinals need to pull off for me to be optimistic about the upcoming season. You've got to get that high leverage arm, not just another arm to go into the bullpen. That I do agree with. I do think you're going to have to get another high leverage arm. What I don't necessarily agree with is it necessarily has to be a guy that is, like, when they sign him, you immediately go, oh, yeah, I know who that is. And what I mean by that is that's typically the top of the market. Like, there are a million bullpen signings in an offseason. How many of them do you truly know? Like, you're going to know when Jordan Hicks signs. You're going to know the Josh Hader. You're going to know a couple of the other kind of top-end arms like uh, Phil Maton, I think, is available again. Um, those kind of names you're going to know. But there could be like a $5 million deal out there for our old friend Luis Garcia. Luis Garcia, yeah. last, year, last year had a bad, had a down year. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't great. But the last, two years prior to that was great for the Cardinals and was great for the San Diego Padres. Like, that's maybe the kind of deal you're looking for that when you sign him, you look at him and you go, I could see how that guy fits into the seventh inning role. I Maybe you're not looking to get a guy that slots ahead of Giovanni Gallegos, but you're looking for guys that can kind of be like in that same tier of him. I, and I think you need two. I, I think they're probably going to approach this and say, no, no, we just need one. We've got Gio. We've got Helsley. JoJo's kind of on the outside there, fifth, sixth inning role. We just need that one guy. And no, I think, no, gonna, I think you need two. Well, I think it's going to be a right-hander also. I would agree with that. Because you got Libertor, you've got probably Thompson or Mads, and you've got JoJo Romero. Like, you've got your left-handed side ready. It's going to be a right-hander, and it's going to be somebody – it's got to be somebody with swing and miss stuff. It's got to be somebody with swing and miss stuff. Otherwise, they're going to be in a massive – not a massive problem, but you still don't have that swing and miss with the exception of if Ryan Helsley – gets back to his old yeah. form, which, again, I can't sit there and expect that for the upcoming and, and season. And they've got to that point in terms of swing and miss, and I think that is what they're targeting, to to their credit. I think they are looking for swing and miss yeah. guys. They've got plenty of those guys, like if you need a contact pitcher, like you need a ground ball, you can turn to Pilate. Yeah, You can turn to a John King, who they got from the Texas Rangers. Um, they've got those guys. What they're looking for is that extra swing and miss stuff. We'll find out once the winter meetings get underway. Plenty of rumors will be starting up over the weekend, and we'll have you covered when we get back on Monday. He's Tanner Hendrickson, Graham Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. We're at the Centene Community Ice Center at the ENB Granite Studios. When we come back, NFL quick hitters headed into another exciting week, including one guy that 
basically just wrote his MVP candidacy last night. We'll discuss that next on 101 ESPN. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Graham Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. We head into another weekend of NFL where the playoff conversation starts to really heat up, but so does the MVP conversation. And we talked about this earlier this week, T-Bone, of uh, it was actually one of my scenarios. I think I was better to forget it that Dak Prescott wins the MVP this season. And Dak last night just improved the probability of him winning the MVP this season. We talk about not knowing what quarterback has been the best QB in the in the NFL this season. Maybe not all season, but from week six on, Dak Prescott has been the best quarterback. Last night, 299 yards through the air, three touchdowns, a 75 QBR rating, and drove his team down for a late-game lead to help Dallas beat the Seattle Seahawks. I don't know what else Dak can do. Of course, we all judge him in the postseason, which we judge him and Mike McCarthy in the postseason. But now he looks like the best quarterback in the NFL. Yeah, man, he looks really good in that, in that game last night. I was kind of skeptical on the MVP conversation. I, I still think he has some to prove because they've got the Eagles coming up again here shortly. But, man, there is I no wait denying. for that one, by the he, way. I, I, Cowboys look awesome yeah. right now. And it's not just... Um, it's not just Dak. Like He has played great, and I don't want to take anything away from him. Dude, the other thing that's been so huge for Dak Prescott in this MVP conversation is CeeDee yep. Lamb is starting to look like a do- not just a number one wide receiver, a dominant well, wide receiver. Well, how about Jake Ferguson, too? I that mean, we talked so much about losing Dalton Schultz, Schultz in the offseason of like what they were going to do. Jake Ferguson looks like an incredible tight end for that team also. Yeah, and, and I think Dak in his MVP conversation, and look, I, I think only one of these teams has a good defense and that's the Eagles like these are the next four games for the Cowboys and this is how he wins the MVP as he performs kind of like he did last night they've got the Eagles next week on Sunday night football then they go to Buffalo to Miami and then they've got Detroit after that that four game stretch he plays well in that against four teams that are not just playoff teams but teams that would maybe not Buffalo but four three of those four teams will be viewed as like potential Super Bowl contenders Mm -hmm. you can then lock him up as the MVP if he plays well so I definitely think that there is a shot that he could be the MVP. I was skeptical going into the Thursday night game, but then I was really impressed after last night's performance. I think that Philly game really decides the MVP candidacy because the rest of those, 100%. I mean, the defense isn't anywhere near what Philadelphia's is. And I, I thought Dak actually was very competitive against Philadelphia. It just came down to the defense not getting the stop late against that Eagles team. Yeah, you know, it's funny, real quick, you said that. And as I look, I'm like, yeah, he threw for 374 yards and three touchdowns yeah. against the Eagles yeah, he was earlier awesome. this year. He, he was awesome against them. It's just his defense didn't solidify that victory. So I, he's done everything. I don't know of a better quarterback than what Dak has been really since week six. But overall this season, his numbers are better than any other quarterback. And the touchdown-to-interception ratio tells that. Now, on the flip side of that game last night, uh, I think we saw a team that is about to basically uh, have the fat ladies sing because the Seattle Seahawks, they're not making the playoffs. 
And it's really disappointing because I was very excited about Seattle this season with Lockett, Metcalf, Kenneth Walker, and Jackson Smith and Jigba with Geno Smith. But that defense has just been absolutely underwhelming. Um, and sitting at 6-6, six and six, still obviously a chance to be in the playoffs. But I don't even think they're the second best team in the NFC West anymore. I think the Rams are better than Seattle. And I hate saying that. Well, I mean, the Rams went 2-0 against them, so I don't think you're wrong. Um, and Vikings get Justin Jefferson back. They're, they're a better team. Um, yeah. It's going to come down to, because they're technically a game up right now, they could be all even by the end of the weekend. Basically, it comes down to, do you believe in the Packers, Rams, or Saints more than the Seahawks? Yeah, and I, I mean... I believe in the Seahawks because of what they've shown on paper, but I believe in at least two of those other teams because of the product on the field has been better than what the paper looks I, like. I think, and I'm, I'm not saying this as as the Rams fan. Trust me. I'm saying this as a guy that watches the NFL. I think the Rams are going to be the team that sneaks in and gets past the Seahawks. They beat them two times, so really all you got to do is finish with the same record with them, and you're going to have the tiebreaker over them. This is the Rams' remaining schedule. Cleveland, which they don't have a quarterback anymore, so like it's going to be a it's going to be a fight to win that football game. But I think they can. At Baltimore, that's probably a loss for the Rams. Then they go against Washington. They go against the Saints at the Giants. I think they can win all three of those games. And then they're at San Fran. That one's probably a loss. So they're going to win probably four of their next six. I look at the schedule for Seattle. There's two more wins in it. Yeah, maybe, maybe two more wins. Like I think they can beat Arizona. I think they can beat uh, Tennessee. But Pittsburgh's going to be tough with the defense. Philly and San Francisco, who they've got coming up in the next two weeks, are both better than and them. And I'm not sure Seattle's defense can stop at least Derrick Henry. Yeah. I mean, it seems I, they have issues in that area. I, I'm very I'm very skeptical that the Seahawks will hold on to that last wild card spot and make the playoffs. I I was one of the highest people on them coming in the year because of all those offensive weapons that you said. But then they drafted Witherspoon uh, in the first round to help the secondary. They brought in Bobby Wagner, who I thought was going to help against the run. And you're right, the defense just has not taken off. Well, another team that is in danger of missing the playoffs still has a chance, though, much like, of course, the Seahawks do, or the Buffalo Bills, also in a similar position at 6-6. Six and six. And the report came out, uh, what was it, yesterday, T-Bone, on The Athletic, saying that Sean McDermott is not expected to be fired or the Buffalo Bills to move on from him after this season. Is, is that the smartest move by Buffalo? Because Sean McDermott has been there now for what? Five seasons? Six seasons? Longer than that. Yeah. Has it? It's been a while. Um, but they've gone through two offensive coordinators since Brian Dable left. They're on their second one right now. And although they have looked better, it is very evident that Sean McDermott can't seem to to take that next step with this Buffalo Bills team. Here's the problem, though. I think Sean McDermott's an incredible coach, and if they move on from him, somebody's going to sweep him up immediately. Frankly, the Chargers should file, fire Brandon Staley so that they could hire Sean McDermott. But I don't know if there's somebody out there that makes Buffalo any better without Sean McDermott. That, that's kind of my stance, too, is I think Sean McDermott's a great head coach. I think he's just got a quarterback that turns the ball over too much. That And, and with that being said, is still one of the best quarterbacks in the league, but you're going to ride the highs of highs and the lows of lows of Josh Allen. And I think you're going to see constantly that you're probably a 10, 11 win team. And on a really bad, on a really bad year, like uh, they'll probably win what nine games this year, eight, nine games this year. Like, I don't think it's a, it's hard to pinpoint the issue for Buffalo. I, I because Josh Allen is too good to just say, Oh, we got to get another quarterback because he's like, he was leading the NFL in touchdowns for the longest stretch until Dak just surpassed him. 
But on the other side, he was leading the league in interceptions. That's not a Sean McDermott thing. Sean McDermott's not telling him to throw the ball in double coverage, throwing the ball into triple coverage, where I see some of those throws and go, what the hell was that? Sean McDermott's a great head coach. And you're right. If you fire him, sometimes the grass ain't always greener on the other side, man. I, I think you stick with Sean McDermott if you're the Buffalo Bills because I think somebody else would hire him. And I think if the Chargers brought him in, I would pick them to be a playoff team right oh, away. Yeah. Chargers make that team so much better because they got a competent head coach that can get the best out of both sides of the ball. One more before we get to Ask Us Anything, which you can send us your questions that we'll answer. 314-399-9646 to our Air Comfort Service text line. Also, you can send it to our YouTube page at 101ESPNSTL. We're live on YouTube, thanks to the Air Alliance team. Uh, The NFC Championship preview. Philadelphia and San Francisco, what is that? That's later on uh, Sunday afternoon. It's not the Sunday night game. That, unfortunately, we have to watch the freaking Packers play. What? I know, sorry. Um, I don't think this is an NFC Championship preview. I think think Dallas is going to be a part of that NFC Championship game. I, I know there are so many doubts about Mike McCarthy because he just doesn't perform in the postseason. By the way, pause real quick. I'm sorry. McCarthy, what the hell are we throwing the ball for on third down last night? I thought it was a great move. Oh, my showed God. showed he's got big cojones, and that's what I like about it him. It showed why I don't trust him. Dude, He's got he's changed that offense, though. Like, he really has. For some reason, they look like a more competent offense than what they did with uh, Kellen Moore there. So, uh, I, I don't think – I don't know who's – frankly, if I had to pick, I would say – I would say San Francisco won't be there. I think it'll be a Philadelphia and Dallas NFC Championship. Yeah, see, I think this is a NFC Championship game preview. And I think where it's going to get tough is I think Dallas, because of the way things kind of fall right now where Philly is the top seed, I, I can't see Dallas. Even if they beat Philadelphia next week, what we were just talking about in that big matchup on Sunday Night Football, I don't think they can still surpass the Eagles because they're two games back of Philadelphia. I think at best they can just finish as the top quote-unquote wildcard team in that five spot. That means you're going to run into Philadelphia in the second round of the playoffs. And I just think San Fran and Philadelphia are just better teams. Even though Dak's played great, i got to see it against those teams that we just mentioned earlier. They've got four pretty tough games coming up. Dak performs well in that, then okay, maybe I'll start to buy into that and say Dallas can go on a run. Right now, though, I just think San Francisco and Philly are by far the best teams in the NFC. I think this is an NFC Championship preview this week. He's Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Alex Ferrario, Grand Francis as well. Week 13 starting up this weekend. We'll get into some college football conversation later on in the 1 o'clock hour. But coming up next, ask us anything. You send us any question you want. We will answer it for Ask Us Anything, 314 399 9646. We'll get to that next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe it's PK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. 314-399-9646. That is the Air Comfort Service text line alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Graham Francis. I'm Alex Ferrario. We are at Centene Community Ice Center live in our ENB Granite Studios. As we get to ask us anything, you send us anything you want to know, and we will give you an answer. We'll start with this one. Guys, why do so many people seem to be still down on Jordan Cairo? The numbers are better than what it was last season at this point of the year. He changed the outcome of that game. What's going on here? I, I, 
I can understand the frustration because when you're paid $8 million, you're expecting to see gold production. And when you look at him compared to Robert Thomas, you're thinking, oh, hey, you should be you should be at 10 goals right now. How does Jake Neighbors have more goals than Jordan Cairo? It's the situations that you're looking at. And Jordan Cairo, albeit only has four goals on the season, but he's also a minus four, which was a minus 17 at this point last year. And he also has how many assists on the season now? 10 assists on the season. So you're getting more contributions from him. But I want to bring Grant Francis in on this one because Grant was talking to Ken Hitchcock yesterday during practice. And he asked Hitch about the start to the season for Cairo. So, Grant, go ahead. Yeah, I was I was asking him, you know, like, do you think with Cairo, since his offensive numbers have been down compared to last year, is it just the fact that he is trying to focus in on the defensive side more, which is affecting his numbers? And he kind of laughed and he was like, no, that's not what's going on. He was talking about how players just go through a growth phase. And Jordan Cairo is still a young player, even though he's making the money that he's making this year. And I understand a minus four isn't ideal for that. But again, 12, 13 goals better than he was last season at this time. He said he's just in a growth phase right now. And players go through it. Some players, it doesn't take as much time. You look at a guy like Matthew Kachuk, who came right into the league. He didn't really have too much time that he needed to take to adjust to the NHL level. But then you look at guys like Jack Hughes. And you look like you look at guys like Alexi Lafreniere, and these are number one overall picks. People were calling them busts for two, three seasons, and now all of a sudden they're, you know, Jack Hughes is a superstar and Alexi Lafreniere is on the rise. Jordan Kyrie was just in this growth phase, and yeah, maybe it's taking him a little longer than what would be ideal to adjust to the NHL level, but he's still in that growth phase, and you gotta give him time to work through it. The offense will come and Jordan Kyrie is sort of on that same page. I mean, he's in the right mindset. I talked to him a little bit earlier in the season about his offensive numbers, and he did say he he's more on the offensive or uh, defensive side of things. The focus for him right now, and the feeling of the offense will come is still there for Jordan Kyrie, and I believe that as well. And Ken Hitchcock sort of reiterated that yesterday. You know how many goals Nathan McKinnon had in his fourth full season in the National Hockey League? Fifty. Sixteen. Oh. Scored 16 goals in his fourth full season. He was a minus 14 that year. You know what he did the next season? 39 goals and 97 points. Takes a while to get kind of comfortable in your shoes or skates in the NHL. Yeah, I I think the biggest thing for the Cairo talk is I I think there's like two, three things to it. One, when you are when you do get the contract and then whether they said it or not, you become the face of the franchise. And when you have the label that Cairo has, which is a goal scorer, when you're not scoring goals, it's tough to kind of shake off the old narrative. It, it's very tough to shake off the old narrative of, hey, Cairo's a bad defensive player. Why is that? Because there's not really a great stat for that. I know plus minus will tell you that. Plus minus is still kind of an iffy it's stat. A finicky stat. Yeah. yeah. So there is no stat to tell you Kairou's playing better defensively. You know, it's not like in baseball we have defensive runs saved, and even that's a fickle stat. <laughs> but there's no great metric for defense. So when you see him, when you when he comes up as a fan and you're watching Kairou and you go, that guy's dogging it back. You know, this isn't a good defensive player. Once you make up your mind on somebody, yeah. it kind of sticks there for a really long time and it's hard to shake that off. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong from the fan base. I'm not because it, I have that sometimes myself too. Yeah, it's a predetermined notion. But, it happens with Bennington too. One soft goal goes in, you're like, ah, oh, Bennington back to his old self. And it's hard for a player to get rid of that narrative. And the guy that I think of, and it's different level of like talent for the players, but for the Cardinals, it was always Bader. 
Yeah. Bader was a perfectly adequate center fielder for the Cardinals. Yep. The issue for him was he ended up having to hit like fifth because they didn't develop a good offense around the around the organization. But you saw the first year, year and a half without I think it's been a year and a half now without Harrison Bader in center field. What do they need this offseason? They need a center yeah. fielder that can catch the ball when it's in the well, air. And how about Jay Bomeister? I mean, Jay Bomeister exactly. spent his, like, the majority of his career all the way up until 2019 as the guy that everyone said, oh, he's not good defensively. And then 2019 happens, and like, oh, my gosh, this guy's incredible defensively. This is what happens in the NHL. Let's pump the brakes. Just because he got the money now doesn't mean he's not going to be worth that money uh, in three to four years when the salary cap continues to rise and other players are making 12 13 14 million dollars a couple more on ask us anything uh, fellas what would you need to see to consider the Cardinals offseason to be grade a I think you'll need to get a top end rotation arm a glass now a C someone of that ilk that I can say okay that guy's starting game one or starting game two with Sonny Gray and then I think you need two bullpen arms like I know that sounds like a lot. It's manageable for the Cardinals. If they only if they got the top tier starter and then they signed a one bullpen arm, then I would probably give them a B plus. Yeah. But I, to me, that's what you still have to do. Yeah, I think you need to get a high leverage arm with swing and miss stuff for your bullpen. And I personally, if I'm going to give you an A, you got to get somebody better than Sonny Gray for this rotation. Uh, one more, guys. What's the favorite Christmas movie in your house? I mean, I watch freaking every Christmas movie. It's like the one holiday that like. Halloween, I do the same thing from start to finish. I'm watching something every night. But um, the Ferrario household has a Christmas movie on every single night. But my favorite one is It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, that's a good every, one. Uh, every evening on Christmas Day that night, my wife and I sit down with the girls and we watch it every year. Uh, I'm trying to think what my – I haven't even watched a Christmas movie yet this year, which is shocking because I've been listening to Christmas music yeah, since say, you've been listening. No, you've been listening um, since last December. I think mine is Santa Claus is Coming to Town. The, the old school one? The old That's school one. one where it is the – what do they call that? Stop action? Is that yeah, what it's called? Stop action, like claymation I, kind of. I, I love that Santa Claus is Coming to Town. I've got the ornaments of Heat Miser and uh, – what's the other one's name? Uh, Frost. Fro- yeah, I can't remember. Jack Frost. Yeah. Is that what his name? I, I thought it was like Cold Miser or something. Uh, I don't Anyways, know. <laughs> I've, I've got the ornaments of those guys. I love the songs in that one. I, I think Santa Claus has come to town. Old school me, 1970. Ah, oh, man. That Grant, is my favorite movie. Grant, you seem like a How the Grinch Stole Christmas kind of guy. I'm going to be honest with you, and if you've listened you while Christmas. I've been on. Not Christmas. I just, I'm not a big movie guy. You know this. That's true. So, That's true. I mean, You're like you, Tanner. Usually in the house, like, my family will have Home Alone on a lot. And that's a great one. A lot of times, though, if there's a movie on, I might sit down and watch it for 15 minutes. And then my attention span is short. I can't sit through a whole movie usually. So I'll go do something <laughs> else. Right. And yeah, so so Home Alone will be on in the background for me usually. Grant's, Grant's the guy that gives my generation yeah. a bad rap. <laughs> I also don't like Christmas music, so don't ask me that either. Hot damn. That's what we wanted to see. I'll take you the hottest take right now. This is going to piss Randy off. Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. I agree. Die Hard is not a Christmas movie, ladies and gentlemen. I said it here first. I'll take your backlash. Tanner Hendrickson, Grant Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. Jordan Bennington picked up the victory last night, but he's got a number that's, that's creeping towards what he did in the early portion of last season. I still don't think it's a problem. Surprise, surprise. I'll explain next on 101 ESPN. To the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.
Buffalo works it into the blue zone. Over to the far point. Darlene with a shot. Right on. Rebound. They've tied it. Off of Peyton Krebs. It goes five hole on Bennington. Off the far boards now. Trying to come all the way through to Benson. Looking for the tap in. Bennington there with another save. And now it slides through and goes in. Looked like he had it locked down, but the referee skates behind and points in. Well, I mean, they're they're in the same boat as our team right now. I think you know we don't we don't like giving up these goals, and they don't like giving them up either. So, it's a team thing, and it's a, that goalies are part of it. We all got to be better, goalies included. That's the head coach Craig Berube. Now, if you heard my tease, and then you just heard that, you're probably like Grant Francis, thinking, huh. Oh. Geez, Alex, a 6-4 win, and you're bashing on the goaltending. Alex is the Bennington defender, you're and he's going to come on the air and talk bad about Jordan Bennington. I am not, sir or madam, so you can turn that radio dial up because I'm going to keep the optimism for Jordan Bennington. Look, the reason I bring this up is because a couple of goals that if you were to ask Jordan Bennington, he'd say he want those back after last night's game. And it has been a trend since the start of that West Coast road trip. Not just Bennington. Joel Hofer's given up a few as well. I mean, you went, what, three out of four games where the goaltender was pulled for the backup goaltender to come in. That's not a good trend that you want. But it's also a similar trend to what we saw last season with Jordan Bennington. That's now five of his last seven games that he has given up three or more goals. And included in that stretch, it's games that he's come in relief for. So pucks are getting past him. We'll talk about the structure and how I think it affects at Bennington in just a bit. But here's the thing. Even with him giving up those three or more goals, he's still pulling out victories. And Curbs and Joey were talking about this last night on the postgame show. The postgame show. I don't know why I didn't know how to pronounce that word. You guys both, and listening, you think Grant Fuhr was a great goaltender, right? Should be considered because he's a Hall of Famer. Didn't get an answer. T-Bone, you don't know who Grant Fuhr is? No, I know, okay. but I, you know, it's hard for me to speak on experience. Solid goaltender, Grant I'd Fuhr. say, Alex. Yeah. You know? I'd say great goaltender. I know great goaltender. You don't be, you don't get in the Hall of Fame by being average. <laughs> he finished his career with an 887 save percentage. Well, You're probably thinking, well, that's terrible. That is bad. But you know what he was great at? Winning hockey games. He had 403 victories in his career. You know, I'm starting to think the win as an angel goalie. It's, turned it's into like the, the win the like a starter. <laughs> Where it is, but, hey, but, I got the win. I gave up six hurts, but, but hey, you know I got the, the win. Is? When goalies are getting the win, it means they're making the the important saves of a hockey game. When pitchers get the win, they exit the game with a tie game because they gave up five runs, and then their team scores a run the next half inning. Oh, hey, look, I got the victory. That's not the case with the goaltender. Last night I thought was a perfect example. So he saw 16 shots from the Buffalo Sabres in that second period, did give up two goals. But then he saw 15 shots in the third period and gave up one goal. And that was a game where you took the lead. It was 5-3 to three before Jake Neighbors scored the goal to make it 6-3. to three. If your goaltender's numbers don't look great, understandable. And yeah, you're worried that the trend kind of continues. But the difference from last season when that trend was happening and this season was that Bennington also wasn't winning games. Bennington's winning games right now. Even if he's given up three or more goals in front of him, that trend subsides subsides at some point in the season. But Jordan Bennington, despite the struggle of giving up three or more goals in five of his last seven games, he's still pulling out victories. And to me, that's the more important factor when you're going through this roller coaster. Yeah, I, I think it just depends on like 
you almost have to know the situation because, like, when you just hear that number, Wyshynski, uh, you would probably go, Dom. wow. Yeah, Dom. You would probably go, wow, that's probably – he's been a bad goaltender. And I, I think last night's one of those where, hey, man, if you're going to allow 46 shots, at some point the dam's going to break. And I think that's what happened last night. So, now, are there a couple from last night's game that I think Bennington would tell you, yeah, I'd like to have that one back, especially that third one where he didn't get the rebound. It hit his – I think he got handcuffed, hit like the wrist or something, fell out, and then they put it in on the rebound. Same for the fourth one that they thought was covered up. Yeah, I'm sure he would tell you he'd like to have some of those back. But you know what he did? He kept you in the game early on to allow you to get that lead. Buffalo comes back and ties it. And instead of allowing that another goal to go in, Bennington steps his game up at the right time, allows for Kyrie to take over for a 24-second stretch to give you the lead. Like, he... I think last night's game, I think the last game in which he gave up three to Minnesota, was the Blues are just allowing a ton of shots. Yeah. Like, his last two games, he though he has allowed seven goals combined, he has faced 83 shots. His save percentage is 916. That's pretty good. That That tells me that, okay, that is more of a, the Blues defense is starting to kind of unravel in the system that they're trying to play and that Bennington has been fine. I do think there have been more goals lately that have been kind of, oh, I bet he wishes he had that one back. I still think, though, Bennington has been playing good hockey, so I'm not overly concerned about that number. <laughs> it's amazing when I bring this up. I, I really am the Bennington defender where everybody loves to pounce on it. Somebody tweeted to me, Bennington got lucky last night. The Buffalo Savers missed four empty nets and didn't score, and Buffalo didn't have Tage Thompson. What's the team's record when they give up three or more goals? I know I'm in the minority with that, but at times when goaltenders go quiet, they go soft, you got to rely on other elements of your game to take over. And that was the offense in this stretch, and it has been the offense in this stretch. And guess what? When you've lost some of these games, which you have, the Kings game, the Sharks game, your offense didn't show up and your goaltending didn't help you out. But last night, your offense showed up to help your goaltending out in the second period, and then your goaltending shut it down in the third period. you got to have a mixture of both guys. I hate to break it to you, but 82 straight games, you're not going to have a goaltender who is the best goaltender in the National Hockey League. If you don't believe me, go look at Thatcher Demko, who's had his rough stretch. Aiden Hill, who had his rough stretch. It happens in this one. And Grant, if you could, you get this audio, uh, Braden Shen talking about the structure of this team. I think that's the bigger cause for why we're seeing so many goals get past the goaltender lately, it's because the structure of this team has gotten way too loose. We're going out there and shooting ourselves in the foot and turning over pucks and not playing hard enough, just not tonight, but in general in the second period. And that's something we have to change. Even, you know, 60 minutes, you can't be giving up 45 shots tonight, relying on your goalies so much. So um, two points is uh, uh, we'll definitely take it. It's a, it's, a, it's a tight league, but we got lots to clean up here and, and start, uh, you know, tilting ice a little bit and, and taking over games. And it's what they did in the early portion of the season. They've gotten away from it. Frankly, I feel like the Blues are falling back on their opportunistic moments to where, like, when loose pucks are available, they outskate their opponent, hence the Jordan Cairo uh, setup for Braden Shen there in that second period. They're using their speed more than they're using their defense to open up opportunities. And if you're winning games, it's not a problem. You need your goaltender to make those saves. But the perfect example of the structure kind of breaking to me last night T-Bone was that Peyton Krebs goal that tied it up in the second period. If you remember correctly, puck gets rimmed around the goaltender. The Blues are kind of in that structure, and then they go wide. And while they go wide, you had the centerman who is the one that pinches in the middle, like the number, the, the one in the middle of a five on a die. One pinched up, 
The other one pinched to the boards. Nobody was covering the middle of the ice, and then you had that high slot in the house shot that Krebs scored to tie things up. That's what you didn't see in the early portion of the season. So when they figure out how to tighten that structure back up, you're going to get back to seeing those 3-1, 3-2 final scores, but you're also going to be seeing both goaltenders have better numbers afterwards because they're not getting those high-danger scoring chances. So I, I do agree that I think the structure has gotten loose lately. I mean, I just looked this up, and I think it's five of their last eight games they've given up four or more goals. That can't be the formula for this team to yeah. be winning hockey games this year. They don't have the offense to try and keep up with that, and that's why they are 4-4 four and four in their last eight. And honestly... They're lucky to not be 3-5. and five. You had that wild Arizona Coyotes game. I, I do agree the structure has gotten looser. I still do think that the goaltending is not completely um, – has 0% blame on the the increase in goals allowed that we've seen over the last eight games. Because, again, I do think there have been goals from Bennington and from who's – or. Uh, not from so. I miss Get him. over it, man. He's gone. I know, but I miss him. From Hofer, excuse me, that I look at and I go, man, I bet they want that one back. I – I mean, it's no coincidence you get three three straight games the goalies get pulled and swapped out. So I I tend to agree that the, the bigger chunk of that pie of blame is the structure around them because it does feel loose. It does feel maybe overly aggressive, which I can understand why they would feel, why they would get into the kind of that habit because they are not a good offensive team at five on five. They're okay. So what do you do? You try and create turnovers. That's how you can get those odd man rushes. That's how you get the uptick in offense. But this team needs to make sure they stick to that structure. The structure is what's going to be able to help the defense stay improved from last year's team and allow them to have these shots at potentially getting into the playoffs and winning these hockey games in the regular season. Well, and for those that are curious, uh, if you go look at moneypuck.com, goal saved above expected among goaltenders who have played 10 or more games this season. Jordan Bennington is top 10 in goal saved above expected still. So despite those rough games, he's still making the saves that analytics believes he yeah. shouldn't be making. And, and again, I don't think Bennington has been like bad lately. I, I think he's just He's been, nowhere near he, what last year was. Yeah, but and he's just been off from where he was early on in the year. And like you may be saying, well Tanner, he was awesome at the beginning of the year. What are you talking about? He was playing like a Vesna trophy guy early on. Yeah, but I, I think he's just been he hasn't been what would you say? The typical Bennington, I think recently. I, I think he's been good, but I, I just don't think he's been like so far and beyond good that he's a, 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 making up for the mistakes in front of him. He's Tanner Hendricks and I'm Alex Ferrario. They'll be back in action tomorrow night when they take on the Arizona Coyotes. And coming up in about 15 minutes, it seems like Calgary's blowing it up. That might benefit the Blues. But coming up next, uh, Kyle Gibson was on with the morning show earlier today, and he said there's one element about this rotation that other teams desire to have. We'll explain what that is and if we're believing it next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. What a starting rotation can add to a team is consistency. I don't think... A starting rotation can really add confidence over a full season. Maybe for one game, if you've got your, you know, if you've got your stopper on the mound, okay. As a manager or a pitching coach or an offense or a defense, when you know what you're going to get out of that guy on the middle of the mound every single day, um, it really can add consistency to a team. You know, an offense knows they don't need to score seven or eight today. A defense knows they're going to be in the game. You know, that consistency can do a lot for a team. 
So that's new Cardinals pitcher Kyle Gibson, who was on the opening drive earlier today. If you missed that interview, you can go back and listen to it up on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com. It's presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. But do so once you get done listening to us until 2 o'clock in the fast lane, uh, once you get done with that at 6 o'clock. But what Kyle Gibson said there basically felt like he was saying what the front office told him when they signed him. We want consistency in this rotation. We want our offense to know, like, hey, you're going to have a pitcher who's in this game for six innings, and he's going to give you competitive outings, and he's going to involve the defense, which is fine. And frankly, hearing him say that, T-Bone, it, it, it's what you didn't have last year. It's why last year stunk so bad. Because every single time we were like, man, is this guy going to give you four innings? Are we going to be talking about the bullpen in here? So Gibson is absolutely correct. But there's a difference in getting consistency from your rotation and getting confidence with that consistency in your rotation. And that confidence in the consistency is still what I question. Because, sure, I know that Kyle Gibson, Lance Lynn are going to be available every fifth day to me. Probably give me five or more innings. But are they going to give me five or more innings where my offense is going to have to score seven or eight runs? That still remains to be the problem. Yeah, I, I think there is some truth to what Kyle Gibson said today about a rotation and providing consistency. And that does, I, I know he said it may not provide you know a lot of confidence in a team or anything like that. I think it does because the consistency can then allow you, I think the biggest part of the consistency in the rotation that he's referring to is it then allows you to set up the bullpen very well, which was an issue they had last year because they just had to burn through relievers constantly because they weren't getting enough consistent outings. But it is a good thing when you look at a rotation and you can say, hey, we can pencil Miles Michaelis in for six innings and three runs or less today. That sounds fantastic compared to what Love we that. saw last year with the rotation. The thing that I do kind of agree with you, and I'm this is why I'm a little more skeptical as the way the rotation is constructed as of today. We'll see if anything changes. The offseason still has three months. My God, three months before spring training. It's okay, man. We got hockey. <laughs> Yay. Hey. Um, I, uh, I, I'm a baseball guy, man. I... The thing that I'm questioning of this consistency is how effective is the consistency, to your point. Because, okay, if I have a Lance Lynn that goes out there and gives me six, seven innings, but he gives up four or five runs a start, how, how, how benefactory is that to the Cardinals? How many more wins do you have this year because of that? Now, quite a bit, because this rotation is quite a bit better than last year's squad. But I, I just... I. I understand what they were going for. They were going for innings. They wanted innings. They wanted consistent innings. They wanted to know what they were getting basically every night when Kyle Gibson and Lance Lynn and Sonny Gray took them out. Sonny Gray, I don't question. What I do question is Michaelis, Lynn, Gibson. Sure, they're going to eat innings, but how effective are those innings? How how consistent are they? Are they going to – and I think this is the thing that was most troublesome for the Cardinals last year. And if I said that – Consistently, they give up, you know, if Gibson gives up four runs in six inning start consistently, that's fantastic, long as those four runs aren't in the first inning. Because what was the issue with this team last year? Last year, they'd be down 3 nothing before they picked up the bats, and that was just a backbreaker for this squad to where it was, oh, boy, here we go again. We already know right now we've got to score seven runs. You know, you give up three or four through a six-inning outing, at least maybe you give up maybe one in the second inning, and you get your bats in your hands before you're looking at the scoreboard and you're trailing. That, that is the thing for me with this rotation. Is the innings that these guys cover, is it effective enough to win? But not only that, can they get off to where the team is not off to such slow starts in games early on? Well, yeah, and last season it always felt like we were asking for more. And yes, of course, you're asking for more innings, but it felt like you were asking for more 
dominance. It, it, you were asking for more ability to stop things from getting worse. And we talk about this with the Blues last year, right? The snowball effect. When, when one loss would happen, it would pile on. Last year, it felt like every single time another guy would take the mound, you'd be like, is he going to stop this from bleeding? And then you'd get three innings and he'd get yanked and you'd be talking about having to come back in that one. Okay, well, can Steven Matt stop this bleeding? Nope, he's not on his game yet. Can Zach Thompson do it? Nope, he's not ready for this yet. Can, can one of these guys stop the bleeding? I do have faith in that. Like, Lance Lynn has shown the ability to do that. Kyle Gibson has shown the ability See, to do I, that. I don't think that – when you say stop the bleeding, do you mean in a game or do you mean in, in the terms in of – In a schedule, in a week. Yeah. So See, if you I, that, lose a game the ne- one night, the next guy on the mound, can he go out there and give your bullpen some time off? Can he give your offense an opportunity to feel like they're in this that, game? That is where I just don't know. And, and what I mean by that is, okay, if, for example, let, let's say – we're running through a big hypothetical here. You know, the Cardinals have lost three in a row. Sonny Gray, uh, Sonny Gray ends up losing his start. They end up losing the game that Michael starts. Then they lose the game that Matt starts. And he had to go through the bullpen early because Matt didn't get didn't eat up a ton of innings. So now the bullpen's a little bit tired going into this new series. Is Lynn that guy? And, and the reason I ask that is because when I think of a guy that's a stopper, I think of the guy that says, sure, I'm going to go seven innings, six, seven, eight innings tonight, but I'm only going to give up one earned run. When I think of Lynn, like, yeah, he could go six, seven innings, but is he going to give up less than four or five earned runs? Is that a stopper? Like, that's an innings eater, but is that a stopper? You can still lose a game if you're giving up four or five runs. In fact, I kind of expect you to lose a game if you're giving up four or five runs. That That is kind of my question is, okay, sure, he's going to eat innings, but does that mean a whole lot if he's giving up? Three, four, five earned runs in that time in that time period. That that's my biggest question about the way that they built the back end of the rotation. That that's why, though, when I say they need a glass now, they need a cease. They need a if Gilbert happened to be available, you know, they need a guy at the front of the rotation. Yeah. Why? Not just for the playoffs. Like yes, they do. They don't have a one-two punch for a playoff series right now. They've got a one, and that's it. And Sonny Gray. They need those guys to help be stoppers. That, yep. that is the biggest reason for it. And that's why I'm skeptical, because I think you've got one guy, and one guy means in the other four games, you might be in a four-game losing streak. And what happens if Sonny Gray deals with an injury, God forbid, because everybody's going to go through that. That's where that other one comes into play. Another thing Kyle Gibson said, and it ties into what we're talking about here, but he mentioned when he signed with this team and when he pitched against them last year, he saw reason for hope. I had the the fortunate you know struggle of facing them. You know, I mean, they were a tough team to to prepare for. They had a really good offense, and yeah, I think you know maybe pitching didn't quite go they wanted, but you know they still have a really good offense and and a lot of really good defenders on the team. And you know, those are two things that are really important, obviously, to winning games. And I think you know once uh, you know they've obviously put a, a pretty importance and a premium here on adding a few starting pitchers. And you know, I don't know what else we're going to do, but. Um, you know, this is a team that really wasn't far off. Were they that far off, though? Because I agree, the offense was top notch. Offense was one of the best in the national or in the national league and almost in baseball. We talked about that. But is it good enough to overcome a pitching staff that's not there for you? Is it good enough to overcome a bullpen that might not be upgraded? Because to me. They've built this team, at least as it stands right now, following these winter meetings, follow the rest of the offseason, eat my words immediately. But it feels like they've built this team that says, we'll be good enough until we get to the trade deadline, then we'll have to make an upgrade. But I don't buy that this team would make an upgrade. And even with a great offense, I'm still not sure it 
you're in that position that he says you're not that far off. It, it depends on the upgrade. Because, like, if they need a, you know, a back-end starter, yeah, they'll make that upgrade. We've seen that upgrade. They need a bullpen arm? Yeah, they'll make that upgrade. We've seen them go get a bullpen arm. Now, do they need an ace at the deadline? Okay, that I'll buy your skepticism because I've never seen them make that kind of a move. Um, I, I I agree with what Kyle Gibson said, though, and I know I'm coming off as probably a negative guy in this segment because I, I am skeptical of this rotation still, but I, I don't think they're far off. Now, I think they were approaching this offseason as – hey, we're not far off from winning the NL Central, which, okay, like, as we've seen, that doesn't do a whole lot for you. But how much does that change once the Cubs do things? Uh, depends on what they do, but, yeah, you're right. I mean, if they're clearly in on Otani. Reports say that they're still one of the four or five teams that remain in on Otani. Um, I I think then the, the conversation can shift, but right now, as things stand, it does feel like they said we're not that far off from winning the NL Central. And, okay, that's fair. If you want to build that way, fine. But you'll be golfing in the middle of October. Um, I, it's a great time to golf, I, I, but But I also believe they're not that far off from being like a true, like I don't want to say a dominant playoff team, but a team that you can look at instead of going, okay, if I squint, maybe they can go on a run. Yeah. No, I, I think you get one more. And, look, I, I don't know if they're going to do this. I'm skeptical of this. But if you go out there and you trade for a glass now or a cease, you are building the proper way to build a October baseball Absolutely. team. And if you get – I don't even know if it has to be two relievers at that point because you're doing so much in terms of making all these moves, bringing in four starters. But if you go out and you get a high-leverage bullpen arm, whoever it might be, maybe it is bringing back Jordan Hicks, you know, then yes, you have a bullpen that I can look at and go, okay, I like some of the pieces there. That looks like maybe an October bullpen. And if you have to add to that at the deadline, there's always bullpen arms available. But then you've got two guys that are leading. You've got the one and the two, the one-two combo punch that you need when you get to October if you bring in another starter. That, to me, is why they're not that far off because they can make it work if they choose to do it. I'm also skeptical on the defensive side of things. Like another defense kind of rounded out, but I still I don't feel. Fair. I still don't know where the center field is at. Even though if it is Tommy Edmond, Tommy Edmond was fine there. Catching, of course, is going to be a question mark no matter what. And frankly, I think second base is too. You know, you got Mason Wynn. You know, you're good on the corners. Uh, the outfield, you're assuming you're going to be good with. But I still think that that's questionable. But again, all of this could be changed if you have a successful winter meetings, and that's what the Cardinals will try and accomplish when they're out there in Nashville this coming weekend. He's Tanner Hendrickson, Graham Francis. I'm Alex Ferrario. Coming up next, Elliot Friedman on the Thirty Two Thoughts podcast talked about the Calgary Flames. They made a move last night, which signifies. They look like they're blowing it up. Is that an opportunity for the Blues to pounce? We'll discuss next. And, oh, I got a Ferrari of five for everybody going into the weekend. All that next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. I think some teams thought that, man, ah, the Flames are going to wait. This is a signal, no. They're ready to talk. They're ready to listen. If you want to do some business with them, you better get on the phone and call. That was Elliot Friedman on the 32 Thoughts podcast alongside Jeff Merrick and Tanner Hendrickson, Grant Francis. I'm Alex Ferrario. They're talking about the move that took place with Calgary and Vancouver last night and if you missed it Nikita Zadorov who we talked about here in St. Louis a little bit was traded to the Vancouver Canucks it was a pending UFA defenseman as he was one of the guys that said he didn't really want to resign there and so he was traded but the part that struck me T-Bone and Grant was he was traded for a fifth round pick in this year's draft 
in a third-round pick in next year's draft. And that's a defenseman who it was reported about eight to ten teams are interested in, and that was the best offer that Calgary deemed available, and they traded him in division, which does not seem to happen very often. And now that Elliot Friedman said that, it backs up what my theory was yesterday. Calgary's ready to blow it up. Calgary, Craig Conroy, even though they're starting to play better hockey, it seems he recognizes that some guys aren't going to be willing to re-sign there. They're in this weird purgatory of, do we start a retool? Do we try and keep moving it forward? And with pending UFAs of Noah Hannafin and Christopher Tanev, a couple of other defensemen, and then with Elias Lindholm, it seems they're open for business. The Blues got to get on the phone. And I know you don't have... But we're retooling. I know, we're retooling. Sure, fine. You got an issue defensively. I think we all can agree with that one. You've got somebody who is 26 years old, who the report from Pierre Lebrun was willing to sign in seven, eight-year contract worth about $7.5 million AAV and still at least reported willing to sign it in Calgary Flames trade him. That's Noah Hannafin. This is the guy, and I know I've sat on my my uh, pedestal and I've talked all about how this guy makes a ton of sense for the Blues. I don't know how you get it done. It doesn't seem like they're going to want the world to trade him, hence the third and fifth round picks. This is a guy that I think the Cardinals should be – the Cardinals. The Blues should be aggressive in targeting – because it it fixes this retool fast enough. It's very clear they wanted to get a defenseman in their top four in the offseason trying to trade for Travis Sanheim. Now you got another opportunity to get one before he hits the free agent market. Uh, well, 100%. I mean, it was clear this offseason that Army felt like the goal of the offseason. It wasn't to get just Kevin Hayes. Like, the goal, though they needed another they needed another guy in their top nine, was can we get a guy that we can pair with Pareko? I, I said this at the time when the trade fell through uh, or when they just acquired Kevin Hayes of, man, it's clear that Army views that the number one thing that they need to accomplish during this retool is finding who Pareko's partner is. They find who Pareko's partner is, I think that's when you can start to have the conversations of they're starting to begin this exit of the retool. Now, the question that I would ask you, because in the offseason it's a little bit different, you know, right. because – for all we know, there may not have been a bidding war. There may not have been a bidding war had Hannafin been available. But now that we're at this point, everybody's going to want it. Everybody's at every team that has defensive issues and wants to get creative. They can make four point nine five fit under the cap, and by the deadline, it's going to be like two million yeah. because of the way the system works and the. But money Calgary's not willing to eat money on that. That's another thing Elliot Friedman said. They're not willing, but, to, willing to eat money. When it's just two mil at that point in the year, yeah, you're it's right. It's not too bad. A lot of teams can make that work, and then you can sign with the extension, or he can sign the extension before yeah. being traded, and you can then you can plan that all out with the cap going up. The question that I want to ask is, if you're the Blues and you are, let's say they're in the same spot they're in now, whatever the point total is, who cares? But they're in the wild card picture. You're in this retool. You say Hannafin's him. We th- we like Hannafin. We want to trade for Hannafin. You get to the trade deadline. You call Calgary, and they say, here's what we want, whatever it is. But then there are more teams that come in, and they create this bidding war. Is Noah Hannafin, in the middle of a retool for the St. Louis Blues, worth saying, we've got to win a bidding war to go and acquire him? Even if that means we've got to give up something we're uncomfortable with, he is the guy that we have to. And I mean have to in all bold capital letters, yeah. have to go get. It's a good question because there is a puke point, I believe, with the Blues here. Um, and that's part of the reason why I would get on the phone now rather than wait till the trade deadline. Because maybe make a really nice-looking offer to Calgary now so you can get them faster before other teams jump into the race. Because the one thing other teams are going to want to try and trade 
are guys that might be pending UFAs also. I saw somebody pop up the potential for Boston to trade for him and trade like I like Jake DeBrusque. Well, Jake DeBrusque's a UFA after this season, and if Calgary's blowing it up, you want future, you don't want right now. I'm not touching a Snuggerud and a Dvorsky because I think those are pieces to your retool. Agreed. But everything else is on the table. And here's the thing. Calgary just traded. I mean, Zadorov is not what Hannafin is. Hannafin is a top-pair defenseman. Zadorov, in my opinion, is a third-pair defenseman, at best a second-pair defenseman. they got a, a future third and a fifth. You've got two seconds and two-thirds in this upcoming draft. You've got some pieces, Bolduks, the Deans, that are good to have for a team that's trying to retool but also even better chips to try and expedite this retool. And maybe I'm off on this. Maybe Hannafin doesn't match what the future goal is for the Blues. But this is a guy that I get as close to the puke point as possible and say, I got to do this. Because you've been searching for somebody. This screams so much like the Jay Bolmeister trade of years past. Because you had a top defenseman and you were like, we got to get somebody who could play with him. And you went out there and you made the trade for Jay Bolmeister and you got him. And then you locked him up. You've got Colton Pareko. I know you can argue all you want if you look at Dom's piece to talk about how Pareko's not that guy. But you've got two really, 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 really solid right-handed defensemen. And you're in search of somebody in that left-handed side in the top four. And that's where this Hannafin comes into play. He's 26 years old. If you sign an eight-year contract with him, you're talking about being there until he's 34. Your defensive core is taken care of. And I know the next question is, well, how do you make the salary cap work? If he's making seven and a half next year, you can make it work. But this is a guy that, although I'm not going to go past my puke point, which is a Dvorsky and a Snuggerud, I think you do have some of the pieces that could get it there before that puke point hits, but you got to do it sooner rather than later. And you're okay if they want a first-round pick, because I think they're going to want a first. I know you mentioned two seconds. Because a first-round pick, if you're picking 18 to 25, let's say they get into a, a wild-card spot and they get bounced, it's a good pick to have, but it's a pick that's probably not going to do anything for you for the next three to four years. Would you rather have somebody who makes your team significantly better now, or would you rather wait and see what that draft pick comes into play for yeah. the next three to four years? Yeah, and what will be interesting, and this is why I brought up the bidding war thing, is because there may be a team. The only reason the Blues trade for him is they know they can re-sign him. You don't trade for him as a rental, even if you are a playoff team. Because if you're the Blues, it just doesn't make sense to give up assets and a retool to go get a rental. If the Blues trade for Hannafin, the goal would be trade him, sign him to an extension, or he signs the extension first, and then you trade for him and you've got him for seven, eight, nine years, whatever the deal ends up being that he signs for. But the reason that I brought up the bidding war is I could see a, some team that may need defensive help say, man, we're just a Hannafin piece away. Who, care, who cares if he wants yep. to re-sign with us? He's a guy that is that all-in, push the chips in, let's go for him. And that's where I just don't know how the Blues would view it because they may think, okay, we probably can re-sign Hannafin, but if somebody else is offering up a better package that Calgary really likes, mm-hmm. are we going to really counter with another offer that we think could be maybe not past the puke point but very close to it? That's why I just find this Blues trade deadline to be so fascinating. And I think Hannafin is the guy for them. Like I, I know we've been banging this Hannafin drum for the last two years. I do like the idea of acquiring him. It's just I don't know... I, I don't know what they're willing to go in terms of pushing chips in for him. Yeah, and I mean, look, if, if somebody's going to come in with an NHL player, then you're not going to be able to outbid that. Somebody texted and said, okay, genius, how are you going to make the trade work? Look, you've got ways to move salary out. We've talked about Verano. We've talked about Marco Scandella. Um, but this trade only works if you're willing to move on from guys and if Calgary wants guys like a Bull Duke and draft picks. And this is the part that I just don't know. Calgary 
basically told you yesterday that we're not looking for things that help us now. We're looking for things that help us three to five years from now. See, I don't know if they sent that message yesterday. I think they kind of did. You but could I, have gotten a better package for Zadorov than a third and a fifth round pick from your inner division rival. I don't. I mean, apparently they couldn't because they took that deal. Like I, I but think I, they couldn't because they didn't want to retain salary. I, well, Toronto was willing to give them something better. They didn't want to eat salary. I, I think the other problem that they had too was. Okay, well, Zadorov said he doesn't want to be here. Like you start to lose leverage. Oh, absolutely. Because if you're Vancouver, if you're Vancouver, and they say we want a second round pick from you, well, why? I'm not going to give you that. You, he doesn't want to be there. If you want to let him walk, or you want to send him elsewhere, but you know that other teams are bidding in that one, which is why that trade was just so odd to me. Because Toronto was very, very vocal about wanting that player for their team. Uh, I forgot there was another team that was in the rumor mill. The Islanders, I think, were in the rumor mill for something like that too. Maybe it was the Rangers. But there's a lot of teams that were were pushing for something like this. The problem really just becomes, do you have the pieces and do you feel like now is the time to push your eggs into that basket? The reason I think it is, is because it's the, it's the area that you're, you're weakest in. Agreed. You've got a lot of forwards in your pipe system that could be competing for your roster within the next year or two. Dvorsky, Snuggerud, Bolduke, Dean. You're good on the forward on top of guys that you already have in place. There's not much in your defensive system other than a, a Buchinger, a Gaudette, a Leo Loof, but these guys aren't projected to be a top pair defenseman. They're projected to be fringe guys. And again, if you do acquire him, the solution is here for the next how many more years Perico have on his contract? Uh, he's Six. here for the next seven, I think. Um you have your top pairing defense for the next whatever it is, six, seven, eight years. Because Hannafin would be signed to a contract extension. Pareko's already on his contract extension. You know what the top pairing is here in St. Louis for the next seven years. This isn't like you know the Cardinals where we talk about trading for Cease. Well, okay, you acquire Cease. You know what the top you know what the top of your rotation looks like for just two years. That's two. This is seven years that we're talking about yep. here. That's why if he would sign an extension, he makes all the sense in the world that you bring him in here, you pair him with Colton Pareko, and you're right. It is the most glaring need, I would say, in terms of in this retool, what do they need? Well, they clearly need a couple top six wingers or one or two guys, one in the top nine probably. Uh, they need someone that can help on the power play. You know, They need a top pairing guy to pair with Colton Pareko. Well, that one is clearly number one for me. Boom, you can check that off the list. And then those other pieces that I just mentioned, those are a little bit easier to figure out in this retool. Now, that's the that's the future look at this one. But I got a Ferrari 05 for you both. You can tell me if you like this one. I don't know if we have time. For oh, this. no, we got time. It's just a junk drawer. We can move past it. I've got a five-player list of how the Blues can add to their offensive top nine by making a trade. Grant, hit the open. You're listening to BK and Ferrario. It's time for the Ferrario 5, a top five list of very random things. So, Ferrario, give us your top five. Okay, I will move fast through this because I just looked down and I'm pulling a BK right now. But that's fine. He's not here. Somebody's got to screw up the clock at some point. Number five on this list. So, in my mind... We've talked about how the Blues need somebody in their top nine, somebody who can help on the power play, somebody who brings a little bit more Craig Berube style to the game rather than what they've been trying to find with Jakub Verana. Maybe it's Verana for these guys. Maybe it's something else. 
But number five on this list, and Grant, you're the expert on this team, the New York Islanders, Oliver Wallstrom. This is a forward, a young forward, who's an RFA after this season. Seems like he's fallen out of grace with the New York Islanders, and the New York Islanders are still a competitive team. They need offense. Could you trade a Verona for a Wallstrom like this? Part of me wonders if they'd be interested. You know, with Wallstrom, I think you're right, Alex. I think he was expected to be better than he has been for the Islanders. And he is a young player, so I don't mind this in the Ferrario 5, especially at number 5. But I think he's sort of... And maybe he just has to go through that growing process as well. But he's sort of similar to Jordan Cairo in the fact that he just hasn't gotten there yet. And I don't know if I'd want to bank on him to be a player for the future long term. But for right now... To try it out like a, like they did with Yacoub Verana, I wouldn't mind it. Yeah, and he might be one of those guys that just needs a change of scenery like a Yacoub Verana. Number four on this list, he's been in the rumor mill also for the Ottawa Senators, Matthew Joseph. This is a guy who played for Tampa, was traded to the Ottawa Senators a few years ago when that Nick Paul trade took place. This guy might be more of a glorified fourth-line player. But he's also somebody who has shown the offensive upside as a fourth-line player for the Tampa Bay Lightning. I don't know if they would just be willing in the Verona side, but it's a player that they know they'll have to move if they want to sign Shane Pinto. This is a guy that I think matches a Craig Berube style, and he's 26 years old. I could see this one. I mean, Ottawa's bad last year, and he finished at a plus five. And again, plus minus, not a yeah. not a great stat to look at, but... Seems like he's responsible defensively. Like you said, 12-goal, 13-goal upside. He's done that in the past. This one's kind of interesting. Number three on this list, I've talked about him before, San Jose Sharks' Anthony Duclair. Oh, I thought you were going to go Mike Hoffman. No, not Mike Hoffman or not uh, Barabanov, as uh, our guy BK likes to talk about. I like Anthony Duclair. You'd have to do some finagling, and I don't even know if San Jose would be interested for a Verona for Duclair, but... He's obviously not in their future. Do you add something to it to bring in a guy who has shown the 30-goal plateau when he was with the Florida Panthers? So Anthony Duclair is one of them. The top two, the Seattle Kraken with Kyler Yamamoto. Um, This is a guy that Edmonton couldn't re-sign in the offseason. Seattle jumped in. Third-line winger, but a guy who does have the offensive ability and is good on the defensive side of the puck. And the number one on this list is Sean Monaghan from the Montreal Canadiens. This not only offers offense, he's a UFA after this season, and you get a little leadership core into that as well. So those are my top two. I I like the final, not just the final two, but the final three. I do like the Anthony Duclair idea because he has been a 30-goal scorer. I don't think you do that by accident. Um, The Yamamoto one's interesting. I I do like him as well. I mean, he scored 20 goals in the past. And then the Shamanaya one as well. I mean, He's the kind of guy you're looking for, though, because you yeah. bring him in, maybe you re-sign him, but maybe you're just looking for kind of a rental because you do have a Snugger Root, a Dvorsky that are getting ready to come up. Maybe right. Balduk's ready by the time next year or a Dean. Like, I wouldn't mind if the Blues said, you know what, let's let's do trade for something. Yeah. Like, if it just costs a second-round pick for a Monaghan, yeah, why not? Go ahead and do it. Bring him in. Maybe he's just a rental, but maybe he helps you out a little bit. Maybe you win a playoff series. Yeah. Well, and look, uh, Monaghan, too. I mean, you could bring him in and look at it and say, like, hey, if he works out for us, maybe we give him Sammy Blade money and he could provide some offensive some yeah. leadership ability. Somebody texted in and said, flawed premise, nobody wants Verona right now. It doesn't have to just be Verona. You could also just wave Verona and trade something to bring in a top nine forward. 
but don't be so sure that nobody wants a player who has 30 goal potential. He just might not work in this system where another team says, hey, we put him on our, our number one power play unit in our system, and he works out a lot better than what we expected. So that's my Ferrari 05, Sean Monahan number one, Kyler Yamamoto, number two, Anthony Duclair, number three, Matthew Joseph, number four, and Oliver Wallstrom, number five. Let's take a break. We'll come back and dive into the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The Junk Drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. Alongside Graham Francis and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Alex Ferrario here at the E&B Granite Studios at Centene Community Ice Center. We're live on YouTube at 101 ESPN STL, sponsored by the Air Alliance team. As we dive into the junk drawer and we hand it over to T-Bone. Alex, would you have interest in buying a house that was on its own island just on the south side of the Florida Keys? Hell yes. You're telling me I could be somewhere where nobody talks to me? Absolutely, but it sounds like a lot of money. Yeah, it is a lot of money. Okay, I'm uh, out <laughs> You got $2.5 million just laying around? No, I already place? can't afford my own freaking mortgage, let alone what that one would be. So there is a place. Uh, it is pretty Joe Rock, a.k.a. Seashell Key. It, this is where this house is listed. It's for $2.5 million. Uh, it is 9,190 square feet is the island size, which is pretty good. I mean, it looks like a decent size island. Uh, this this house was featured on HGTV back in 2014. Of course it was. But a house has been built because that house was destroyed back in 2017 because of one of the hurricanes. That oh, yeah, through. no, I don't want to go there anymore. That, that was my main reason. <laughs> I was like, man, this whole living on an island thing sounds great. It's connected to the shore electricity, the city water. Yeah, like, you didn't tell me that there's a hurricane spot coming at me. I was like, okay, you know. Like, if I had this kind of money, I'd love to live on an island. You know who I'm jealous of? And this is going to sound so weird. I'm, I'm, I'm deep in blacklist right now. I'm, I'm like two seasons away. I'm jealous of the uh, the people that go into witness protection that Raymond Reddington looks at and be like, I'm going to send you to a private island where nobody will ever be able to find you, and you've got an endless amount of income coming your way. See, now, that I wouldn't want to do. Witness protection sounds fun. No, because there's a chance you still get discovered and killed um, yes i understand that this like living on an island like it wouldn't be too bad i do like i envision like a yard for when i grow up or when i grow a up yard you're gonna have a pool when i'm when i'm older you know so like the ocean i can play wiffle ball with my kids if they want to play football in the backyard grilling uh a pool like like you said hey like this island whole thing like i would don't get me wrong it would be cool but, like, not having a yard where if I hit a wiffle ball and went into the ocean. Just, yeah, yeah, just get another one. And then, eh. luckily, one of your pet sharks will bring it back to you. Probably uh, yeah. chewed up, but you could go for a swim and get that I, wiffle ball. Like, I wouldn't mind this because you're not – it doesn't say how far off you are of land. If this said, like, you're 100 miles from land, okay, I'm out. But I, if it's, like, 10, I'm totally in. I could promise everybody listening that if I ever had that type of money, the first thing I would purchase is an island, a private island with a house. I pay off debt. Do you want to be close to land or no? I'd be close enough like I have my a boat that can take yeah, me to like land. Like a 10-minute yeah. you know, But it would drive be in. far enough out so that people can't contact me. I'm in. t we should go into this together. But you can't live there. I, I only right. going to live there. 
He's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Alex Ferrario. Coming up next, college football playoff weekend is about to get this much more exciting. Who's the team that causes the most havoc? And Mizzou, sounds like we might have the preview of what the bowl game is going to look like. We'll explain that next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. No BK with us. He is out on vacation. He will be back on Tuesday. And on Monday, we will be talking about hopefully some chaos around college football, T-Bone, because now we enter the college football championship games. And, of course, the college football playoff rankings, which already people were discussing. But, man, does it become a lot more entertaining after this weekend, you've got Oregon and Washington going head to head. You got Alabama and Georgia, Florida State and Louisville. You got Texas and Oklahoma State, Michigan and Iowa, although that one's not really any competition. But when it comes to the outcomes of these college football championship games, T Bone, which one really causes the most damage in the rankings? Because to me, Alabama's the one that destroys everything. If Alabama beats Georgia, that top six, that top four is going to look significantly different if, say, Georgia pulls out the victory. I, I like that one because if you get Alabama that wins and Texas holds on as well, it's a very tough argument to keep Georgia in the playoff scenario, to be honest with you, um, because you'd have Bama with the head-to-head win. And if you're Texas, you're looking at that going, well, wait a minute, we beat Alabama. We beat Alabama, yeah. So if Bama beat Georgia – that mean them as well um and then who knows what the chaos is that could occur from the Pac-12 championship game that is tonight which is just going to be an awesome football game um I to me it's Florida State I they have if they blow out Louisville and I think it has to be a blowout win for them because again they they are the team that should be viewed as have played one football game and I know that sounds harsh but they just lost the Jordan Travis two weeks ago they're playing their backup quarterback who is not that impressive against a bad Florida team that didn't make a, didn't even qualify for a bowl, which is hard to do as an SEC squad. Um, they If they blow out Louisville this weekend, I don't know what you do for the college football playoff committee, and including if Alabama – forget if Alabama wins, but if Texas wins, let's say, because I would argue that Texas is still the better football team because they have their starting quarterback. They've got a really good roster. Their one loss was to an Oklahoma team that now you look at it, it's not as bad. It's uh, not as uh, quote unquote good of a loss, but mm-hmm. yeah, they're still a good squad. The Florida State team, like you just won the ACC. What does that? What's that really mean? Like, there's not anybody that's great in the ACC. Louisville's a good team, but you know they lose this game here to Florida State. They're going to drop to like around the 20 range in the college football playoff rankings. I think Florida State winning big this weekend throws everything up in, into chaos because if they if they win by like three, if they lose if they lose, you know they're out. Like that's the easy part. Like okay, thank God we don't have to worry about putting in a backup quarterback. We can say that they're out of the playoff. And I don't even. I, I, it has to be winning big. Even yeah. if you win by a little and Louisville keeps it close, you don't deserve to be in the college football playoffs, regardless if you're undefeated, especially for how the other teams perform. But I will say this. like, I, I think the committee put themselves in a tough spot because they are number four going into that game tomorrow. Yeah, you're So right. 
whether they win. Whereas Oregon's number five, and if yeah. Oregon beats Washington, like now you're talking about them. Like had the committee put anybody, and I mean truly, well, not just anybody, but anybody that Tony? was, maybe, um, <laughs> had they put like Texas or Alabama or Oregon into that number four spot, you basically said by that, that going into championship weekend, Florida State has to win big. What they're telling you right now by putting them at number Florida four State just needs is to win. Florida State's got to win. Yeah. Well, okay, but what if it is absolute ugly football and they win? They go 13-0. and They are 13-0. and They haven't lost a football game, and they are in a Power 5 conference and they're ACC champions. What do you do if you're the college football playoff committee? You basically told us this is like the preview of the scenarios is what has to happen. And you basically just said, yeah, Florida State's essentially got to win. Like, I, I think Florida State winning is like the most – crazy potential outcomes we could see and it just throws everything into wha- into flux if you're the college football player. So let's committee. go down this path then. Let's say Georgia beats Alabama, Michigan beats Iowa. That's your 1-2. Yeah. If Florida State beats Louisville and it's only by a little, if Oregon beats Washington and that one's by a little, and or- Texas wins. And Texas wins. Oregon should overtake Florida State because you're a lower C team beating a Washington team even if it's close. Which would well, move Washington to number four. Yeah, well, then it comes down to who do you put in? Washington, Florida State, or Texas? And Texas has their best win is over Alabama, yeah. who is now at two losses. What's Florida so, State? So uh, there's just probably Louisville. Louisville would be their best win. Same. And Washington's Washington best win is Oregon. Oregon. Uh, like To me, Washington would be yeah, in. Washington deserves that. But I'm not sure that the college football playoff committee is going to yeah. look at it that way. And don't forget... You still have a one-loss Ohio State team that would be sitting on the outside going, true. hey, hey, our loss was to Michigan. <laughs> over here? They're the number two team. Come on, we want to be in. Florida State's got a backup quarterback. <laughs> like, Florida State winning is truly, to me, the worst outcome for the college football playoff committee. There are, again, Bama winning is also a bad one because then you've really got the debate of do we put Georgia in over Texas? Yeah. Like, that's tough. Man, I, I would hate to be on that playoff committee looking at that going, my God, we got to put Florida State into this. There's Washington's clearly a better football team. Imagine Ohio if, State's clearly a better football team. Imagine if Bama wins, Florida State wins, Oregon wins, and Texas wins. Like, what do you do? Oh, my God. What and, a nightmare. And by the way, like, we're running through these scenarios. I, I don't think most of these are going to happen. I yeah. actually think Florida State probably loses this weekend. But I just love the idea of this too. being chaos. I, honestly, I wouldn't be shocked if you know selection show is on Sunday. I wouldn't be shocked if the playoff commission. Went, oh, we need another day. Yeah, let's we, do one more of these. We, we need twenty-four more hours. We still haven't come up to a clean decision. This is a nightmare for us. We don't know what to do. Give me a live look into the analytics room of guys just crunching numbers and trying to figure out how it works. I, I think this has the potential to just be a. I, I want to call it an awesome debate. I know a lot of these fan bases will be just absolutely ticked off. I think it's great for us that are sitting on the outside going. Hey man, Mizzou's got a New Year's Six bowl. We know we know they're good. You know, Illinois, we're not making a bowl. I know I'm good. You know, I don't have to watch bowls bowl season this year. Speaking of those New Year's Six bowl, uh, Kirk Bowles, I believe his name is. He is a columnist for the Austin American Statesman in Austin, Texas, which essentially is kind of like the Post Dispatch in Austin. Uh, he reported yesterday that. According to one of his sources, if Texas doesn't make the college football playoffs, that you can expect a Missouri versus Texas Cotton Bowl game. And the scenarios he pointed out is essentially like it's going to be tough for for Texas to make this college football playoffs. So all likelihood is a Cotton Bowl matchup between Missouri and Texas. And frankly, T-Bone, 
That's the best outcome that I could have asked for. I am. I would be so excited to watch that matchup compared to any other matchups of a New Year's Six bowl game. Yeah, I, I think Texas-Missouri would be an awesome bowl game because that Texas squad, you just saw them beat Alabama, okay? And we're going to see Bama go head-to-head with Georgia. Yeah. And the reason I'm kind of running through this scenario is because Mizzou was in that game with Georgia, and we'll see how Bama fares against him. I, I think Mizzou is kind of in that ilk of uh, Alabama. There's a reason they're only one spot behind them, two spots behind Texas. Like, they could go head-to-head with Texas, and I think it would be a, a great football game. Like, you would get to see an awesome matchup that you haven't seen, an old-fashioned Big 12 rivalry game, or not rivalry, but an old-fashioned Big 12 game. Yeah, I, I would love to see Missouri play Texas. I'm still rooting for Tulane just so I can hear BK complain Ooh. about it, but going up against Texas would be a whole lot of fun. Well, it starts tonight. you got the uh, the Pac-12 championship this evening, and then all weekend you've got the Big 12, SEC, Big 10, and ACC championships. Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll have one's got to go. You send us three scenarios. We'll tell you which one has to go. 314-399-9646. But coming up next, one scenario that's in the NHL right now is if you're an above 500 team after the month of November – you are in one heck of a good position to be a playoff team. We'll explain that and try and explain what the hell is going on in the NHL coming up next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. So the month of November is officially wrapped up for the Blues and uh, a Blues team that picked up their 12th victory of the season, 12-9-1 overall. Three games above 500, T-Bone. And alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Graham Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. Why does that matter? Because, well, we went back and looked at this earlier today, and I was going to do it last night, got home late, fell asleep in the middle of me looking it up. You know, I wouldn't have admitted that in, out loud, but yeah, oh, hey, of course you, not. you did the research. Yeah, no, I came home at 1230 in the morning and looked this one up. No, yeah. but going back to 2017-2018 season, uh, we did the threshold of being 500 or above. Back in that year, 24 teams that were at or above 500 all of those teams made the playoffs. There was only one team that was below 500 that made the playoffs. 2018, 2019, 24 teams made the playoffs. Our 24 teams were above 500 or at 500, and only one team that was below that threshold made the playoffs, and that team was the Blues that won the Stanley Cup. But the part that was really striking to me was two years ago, there were 24 teams at or above 500. And all of those teams are, were in position to make the playoffs. So zero teams that were below that threshold made the playoffs. Yeah. Last season, 22 teams were at that point. 500 or above, zero teams below that threshold made the playoffs. You're sitting in a field now of 17 other teams that are putting themselves in a position to be in the playoffs, which, one, tells you where the NHL is at right now, but, two, if, if trends are going in the direction that you're seeing – if you're at or above 500, you have a very good opportunity in front of you to make the postseason because teams that are below that threshold, you could pretty much write it in stone. They're not going to be a playoff team. 
yeah, if you're below the 500 mark, seems like you're probably out of it. Blues above 500. And though in some of those scenarios, you said like 22 or 24 teams, yeah, there are a couple that won't make the playoffs. But, hey, they knew at the end of November they had a fighting chance, you know. Right. And that's where the Blues are right now. And if you would have told me at the beginning of the year that come December 1st, while well, we're here at Centene Community Ice Center, we'd be talking about a team three games above 500 that's in a playoff picture, I would have said, um, okay, yeah. I, I guess that sure. could happen. But I would have been a skeptical. And you know what? To the Blues' credit, they're playing this new system. The system has worked. Offensively, they've had some struggles this year, but they're getting great goaltending, and they're above the 500 mark. Like, they continue to fall into these trends. You know, we talked about, I think it was, it was either earlier this week or it was last week. Well, it had to be this week because Thanksgiving was last week, where, you know, the teams that are in the playoff picture come Thanksgiving. I think it is over the last handful of years, it's like seven of the eight or 15 of the 16 end up making the playoffs that are in the playoff picture at the Thanksgiving break. Okay, well, that's one trend. The Cardinals were, or the Blues were in that category. Yep. All right, the next trend that we just looked at, if you are above 500, or if you're not, if you're below 500, most of those teams miss the playoffs. Guess what? The Blues are not below 500 at the end of November. So these are some trends that the Blues are kind of keeping keeping the status quo with, making sure that they're in these. And maybe they do end up falling out of the playoffs. We'll see how things play play out this season. But right now, I would say they're definitely staying with the pack, staying with the, the pace that you need to be at to be a playoff team so far. And to put this into perspective, last season at this time, the Blues were 11-11. and 11, So they were at 500 uh, and, of course, didn't make the playoffs. They were averaging 2.8 goals per game, and they were averaging 3.55 goals allowed per game. At this point this season, three goals per game is what they're averaging, so better than what they were last year and nearly half a goal better than what they were in goals allowed last season so all areas significantly improved than what it was for the last couple of years also your penalty kill is sitting at 80.4 percent it was 69 percent last season where's that at the nhl 80.4 percent i say because they were like what 15th when we looked the other day so i'm assuming 15th right now yeah Yeah. but you were one of the worst penalty kills in the league last year with a 500 record and though your power play has not been able to be the has been bad. It's yeah. just been bad. Um, it hasn't been what can either help put a game away for the Blues or help them come back in a game. At least the penalty kill is doing that opposite effect for other teams. You know, the Blues penalty right. kill, though it's not near the top half of the league, it's 15th. And honestly, for me, the Blues PK is being hammered down by, like, three bad games. Like, yeah. I think for the most part they've been pretty good. There's a couple games that stand out where they were bad, like that Arizona loss early in the year. Um the PK is doing a pretty good job to where it is doing that opposite effect of, okay, you're going on a power play. Dude, last year this team went on the penalty kill, and I was like, oh, crap, the game's out of reach. They're going to give up that goal and go down 3 nothing. Not so much this year. Well, what's crazy about it, too, is uh, the bottom 10 teams in the National Hockey League in terms of power play percentage, five of them have – terrible power plays and they're above 500 so Washington has the worst power play in the National Hockey League they're six games above 500 the Blues are three games above 500 Calgary is sitting at 500 and has the second or the fourth worst power uh, power play in the National Hockey League and Philadelphia is a game above 500 as well as Pittsburgh also bad power play so it could be done you're putting yourself in a really good position to succeed being at or above 500 the other issue with this and the reason that it's a good position is because for some reason teams just stink in the National Hockey League this season. You you sent the uh, text earlier today that basically said at this point there are 18 teams that are at or above 500, which means there are 14 teams sitting below 500, where, again, last year there were 10 in that spot. Two years ago there were eight. 
Four years ago, they were eight. Five years ago, they were eight. Having 14 teams that are below 500 is another reason why so many teams, one, feel optimistic that they can be a playoff team because it's an underwhelming start. But two, it's the reason that even the Blues being so bad keeps them in a position where they're five points away from being a top three team. Yeah, it, it's like the perf- like if you could have like drawn up the most ideal year to start a retool, this is the year to do it if you're the Blues. Because they do truly want to be a playoff team. The Blues are not on purpose trying to miss the playoffs. They want to get to the playoffs, but they're trying to do it with uh, – what would you stop gaps yeah. in the in the lineup? You know, Avrana on a one year deal, Kapanen on a one year deal, uh, Blay Sunquist one year deals, defensive contracts that they wouldn't mind getting out of as soon as possible. So they're kind of in that spot where it is, yeah, we want to be a playoff team, but in most years, I would think like the Blues, a team like them with twenty five points, five sixty eight point percentage, which is pretty good. They continue to play 500s hockey, you know, where they're up and down, up and down, up and down. A team like that typically is not sitting as the number one wild card in the Western Conference. For whatever reason, the National Hockey League has, I think the, the thing that's happening in the NHL this year are you're seeing a bunch of teams going through transition, like we've talked about, the Pittsburgh Penguins, the Capitals who had older talent in Ovechkin, Crosby, that are trying to transition into trying to win with the older talent, also bringing in a new wave of talent, kind of the same as what the Blues are trying to do. <laughs> Excuse me. You getting worked up? I am getting worked oh, goodness. up. goodness. You've also got the teams that are really trying to rebuild, but then you've also got a couple teams that are just clearly much better across the board. Colorado, uh, Vegas, Vancouver, L.A. Like It is a very top-heavy National Hockey League compared to in recent years where there's like one, two teams that are there. Like last year, there were what, just three teams, would you say, Yeah. that were like top tier. This year there's like five, six, and then there's like a big old clog in the middle, and then there's just the bottom-tier teams. What's wild about it, too, is if you kind of look at some of these teams that are above 500, like Detroit I can understand because their offense is just uh, the best in the National Hockey League right now, but Arizona being above 500 team, uh, you've got Philadelphia being an above 500 team, Calgary and Nashville are at 500, but then you look at Buffalo, who was expected to be a playoff team, below 500, Seattle and Edmonton and Minnesota all below 500, There will be some changing of the guard, which will kind of change this statistic this season, unless things just kind of stay on trend. But it's a wide-open NHL early portion of the season, which is setting up the month of of December to be very dire for this Blues team to get that structure back because you play, I think, eight of the 14 games in the month of December – against Western Conference teams. So, you know, you've had success against the East. You've struggled against the West in the first two months. That's got to change because if you fall behind in the Western Conference games, specifically the Central in December, you're going to be looking up after the year. And and as you're saying that, it it popped in my head. If you can go on a winning streak here, like, and look, I'm not saying like, hey, they have to win. They got to go on a five-game winning streak in the month of December. But if you get hot in December, like the offense clicks, the structure gets going, man, you may be able to separate yourself for the season, you know? And I'm not saying, like, climb into the top three, but with this muddy middle that is the Western yeah. Conference, man, you go on a six-game win streak, you may you may be up, you may look back in the rearview mirror and be eight points up on that team that's sitting on the outside looking you in. You might have to go on that winning streak because Minnesota's now won back-to-back games. Nashville just snapped their six-game winning streak. If, if Arizona's in the midst of a three-game winning streak, if you want to be a playoff team talking in 2024 once we hit January, you're going to have to put some type of run together because some of these other teams are. Washington, one of the worst teams in the NHL in terms of power play, 
They just put together a string of hockey games. That'll be an area that they'll have to focus on once they open up the month of December, which will be tomorrow night against the Arizona Coyotes. We'll uh, rewind it with Jake Neighbors coming up in 15. But coming up next, you send us four scenarios. We'll tell you which one has to go. One's got to go to wrap up the work week here on BK and Ferrario. Comes your way next on 101 ESPN. To the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. This is BK and Ferrario. Time now for One's Gotta Go. We offer up the talking points, and you get to pick which one's gotta go on 101 ESPN. Time for our favorite segment of the week. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Graham Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. It is BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN at the Centene Community Ice Center from our E&B Granite Studios. You send us four scenarios. We'll tell you which one's got to get up on out of there. It is one's got to go. 314-399-9646. Let's start with this one, boys. Christmas Decoration Edition. Tinsel. Christmas lights blow up those blow up like items elves, in your front yard or elf on the shelf. This one's easy for me. It's tinsel. Oh. That can get like that gets all over the place. Oh, yeah. I like Christmas lights like those can be annoying like especially if you have the kind where like one light bulb goes out and they all go out and like, putting them terrible. up. Terrible. Yikes. Yeah, put them up or bad. Like the blow ups. I've never even dealt with those. So, like, I don't even know. Maybe that is a massive hassle. Um, Elf on the shelf. Like, that's a fun thing for kids. So, like, I, why would I want to get rid of that? I'm definitely getting rid of the tinsel. We have that back at my in my hometown. Oh, that stuff's all over the house. I hate it. It's, it's stuck to you. Oh, it's the worst. Grant? It, it depends on what aspect you're looking at it from. I think if you're looking at it from the way it looks aspect, I think the blow ups have to go. But if you're looking at it from a which one is most difficult to put up, I'd say the Christmas lights probably have to go because, gosh, putting those up around the house is just uh, it's a project. That's for sure. And you got to deal with the weather, all that stuff. It's just not ideal. Yeah, the lights suck putting up, but it's got to be tinsel. I'm with Tanner here. This is, I mean, it's like freaking glitter. I tell my wife there's no glitter in the house because I just, I can't stop finding it. Our Christmas tree has like the, the, the fake snow on it. Oh. And that's the glitter. And every year we put it up, I, I like tell her, I said, you have to put this up and then like talk to me when it's all clean because I can't look at all of the glitter on the ground. So just, they're, the only tree in my house that had, or at my, in where my parents live is just the tree up in the family room upstairs. I will go downstairs and there's tinsel downstairs. How did it get there? It's like uh, those party poppers that you do on New Year's Eve and you find like oh. pieces of string of it. It's like, oh my gosh. All right, one's got to go from the 314. One's got to go buffet edition. Chinese buffet, pizza buffet, breakfast buffet, or just a traditional bu- buffet? This one's easy for me. It's just because I'm not a fan of this style of food. It's the Chinese buffet. I'm oh, just, really? I, I I'm with I you. Yeah, really? I, yep. I'm not a big Chinese fan. Um, so I would definitely say the Chinese buffet's got to go. I, I would have gotten rid of the breakfast buffet here because I've never been to a breakfast buffet that's good. It's either all dried out under the lights. You get the eggs that are the powdered eggs that, you know, taste kind of like plastic the french toast that they have or the waffles is all dried out the bacon is typically the best part but if you don't cook the bacon long enough True. it's not crispy the breakfast buffet is always underwhelming i like me a good chinese buffet although 
It's like the same three or four things I put on my plate, but it's endless. Love a pizza buffet. I used to dominate a CC's pizza back in high school. And the traditional buffet is the, the best of all of these. But, yeah, the, the breakfast buffet is going to have to go for me. On See, this. Alex, for me, like whenever I go to a hotel, I look forward to the breakfast buffet in the morning. Really? If it's provided, yes. Oh, yeah. See, I, I always feel like it's underwhelming because it's never – it all tastes so like – been there done that you know like at least the other ones they keep it fresh when the breakfast like they put it out and it stays out until it's all gone which means it's all going to be dried out that's every buffet though not really if you go to a good buffet they keep the stuff flowing a little bit i guess come on man all right uh one's got to go burger toppings edition uh cheese bacon caramelized onions or a fried egg i i'd get rid of the fried egg i i just don't want like a breakfast thing on my burger. Um, I, I'm not that big on caramelized oh, onions. So crazy. I can do a little bit of caramelized onions, not a whole lot. You got to have the bacon and you got to have the cheese. I I, just, I don't know. I've never been like, oh, I need to have a fried egg on my burger. I'm just not that guy. Yeah. See, this is the thing. Like the fried egg is mandatory on the burger. Oh, it's no. like the perfect topping. I don't know which one I can get rid of here. I think I would just get rid of the caramelized onions because I'll just take the normal onions if I can have my fried egg. Bacon and cheese got to be there. But, man, you're telling me there's nothing better than biting into that burger and the yolk just yeah. leaking Ugh. onto the burger. No, no that, oh that's God, the part so that good. I can't stand. It makes my skin want to crawl. I yeah, love caramelized exactly. onions. I don't really care for just raw onions. Uh, cheese is a mainstay, and then bacon obviously is staying as well. So, yeah, it's it's the fried egg for me. Oh, man, I love. I think I might go home and make a burger and put a fried egg on that bad boy. Uh, one's got to go championship run edition. So the one you're getting rid of, you don't see. The Blues Cup, Cards World Series, College Football Championship, or a March Madness Championship. And we'll just put Mizzou and Illinois or Hofstra if you'd like to, Grant. Not going to happen. <laughs> uh... This one's pretty easy for me. My, it, would be, uh, it would be the College Football Championship. Because it's unrealistic? Well, no. Well, that absolutely for Illinois, not for Mizzou. They're great. Uh, I, I just I don't feel like that field is difficult to get through like a March Madness one is. Like cards and blues are pretty obvious. Those are staying. But to be able to, to win March Madness, I mean, you're talking to go through like the gauntlet of a schedule, whereas I know that the teams are tough. You got to go through. But we're, we're talking about like what? One victory, two victories, and you're there because of the committee that puts you in place? See, I would actually get rid of, like, a Illinois or Mizzou college football playoff championship run because I think March Madness is tougher to get through. And the reason I think that is – That's what is, I'm saying. So you'd get rid of the champion, the college football championship run. Yeah, because because I because I think that one – Don't I mean, all of these would be special. Like, I'm not trying yeah, to course. say it wouldn't be. But, I mean, there's a lot of luck that's involved of surviving a tournament of 64. Like – you need to get past a team that probably pushes you towards an upset, as Mizzou has seen by two 15 seeds in recent memory. Um, you also need maybe a little bit of luck where the one gets knocked out early. And then you also have to, like, if you need to shoot the ball well in every single game. In the college football playoff scenario, like, yeah, you, you win three games. I, I don't know. For me, it's just the college football playoff one is not easier. But there's less teams, not as much of – Man, you really have to survive that school that you overlooked that's going to come in. You know all the teams you're playing are really good. So I don't know why. I would say college football playoffs. Grant would get rid of the Blues Stanley Cup because he wants to see Hofstra win both. Oh. Wow. God, you guys I, have a football team? Uh, used to. We used to. Oh, we see, don't They anymore. were so bad they had to move them. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, they weren't great. But you know what? Hypothetically, um, my version of Hofstra that has a football team, uh, I would get rid of the March Madness run. Um, and, and it's just because I'm not really into basketball all that much. So I think they do a great job with March Madness, the format of it and everything, all the upsets. But basketball is just not really my thing. So I think I'd get rid of that. All right, let's do two more here. One's got to go uh, chore edition. Doing laundry, which means folding and putting away. Doing the dishes by hand or cleaning the bathroom. Uh, this is probably unpopular opinion, uh, if there is such a one for this. Uh, say, for I me, it's, all of them are justified. It's, for me, it's doing laundry. And it's not, it's not even doing clothes. It's freaking bed sheets. I hate those. I cannot fold them. Oh, I hate it. I, oh, it's my worst nightmare. I wish I could get a robot to fold them. <laughs> Grant? You know, I think I'm with you, T-Bone. I feel like every time I do laundry, like, when I'm done, I'm just pissed off. Like, I, yeah. I hate doing it so Sounds much. Right. Like, if I'm cleaning the bathroom once I'm done, like, I feel accomplished. Like, it's something that you don't have to do for a little while because, like, unless 100%. you're trashing your bathroom all the time, like... You don't have to clean the bathroom all that much, but laundry is like an every week thing. So, yeah, I'm getting rid of laundry. And it's even worse when you don't have a, a uh, washer or dryer in your oh. house or apartment. When I have oh, to drive yeah. somewhere, and in December when it's cold at night, no thanks. See, and, that's that's why I, I, I've learned to live with the chaos that is the laundry. Like, we do the laundry, and we just put it in a pile on our floor, and we just dig well, through see, it. Well, see, you're not doing half of the the process here. Yeah, I know. So, Well, I am. Not I'm doing the laundry. I just don't have to drive to a laundry. Well, you gotta, well no, you got to fold it the proper put it away. An, the proper answer. No, I don't need to do that. Well, see, that's what I'm saying. You're only doing half of the, the process. The, the proper answer here is cleaning the bathroom. There is nothing worse than having to go into the bathroom and cleaning off somebody else's, for lack of a better word, crap. There is nothing worse than you having to do that. That that will make you feel as small as possible to have to do that. Okay, here's the thing, though. At home, if you have an experience that leads you to believe that that might have happened, you should clean it up yourself. What do you mean? Okay, on the toilet, if you, oh, uh, yeah. you know, well, that's what you, I'm saying. you should check and make sure before you make someone else clean it. Well, absolutely, but yeah, not a lot of the time you're not cleaning your own. You're cleaning somebody else's, like a guest that comes over to your house. That's fair, I guess. Uh, and I that's an, nasty. I had an old restaurant I used to work at. I had to do oh. that. Uh, yeah, that that might actually overtake the uh, laundry. Okay. Now, if I if I had worked oh, like, yeah, no. like a restaurant or whatever industry where I had to go clean the public bathroom for the, all the employees there, yeah, then yeah. this would go. I was assuming just my house. Uh, yeah, when, when someone... I. I've had that asked, too, before, and it's like, yeah, that's not happening. So that's our One's Gotta Go segment. Graham Francis, Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Alex Ferrario. We'll come back and rewind it next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Final 
time here on BK and Ferrario as we rewind it, headed into the weekend. If you missed anything from the show today, you can check it out on our podcast page, 101ESPN.com, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. A lot of fun conversations talking about the Cardinals, finding that consistency, what they're going to be looking for at the winter meetings. We got into the Blues, including the month of November, Jordan Bennington, and we talked Jake Neighbors. And that's where I want to rewind it today, boys, because Jake Neighbors is having his coming out party and really only his second full season in the NHL. Last year was considered a full season, although half of it was spent in the American Hockey League. He's not considered a rookie, but right now he's got nine goals, which is top 50 in the National Hockey League. He's got one of the best shooting percentages in the National Hockey League. All of that is great, but the part that I think is monumental for this Blues team moving forward out of this retool is that they've established a young power forward in the NHL. And these things really do seem like they're unicorns in today's game. I I mean, when you think of the best power forwards, of course you think of the Kachuk brothers, you think of Tom Wilson, you think of, um, uh, why am I completely blanking on his name? Oh, Gabriel Landeskog with the Colorado Avalanche. You think of Pat Maroon. But it's you don't think of a lot of guys that are, just entering the league as power forwards. And the reason I'm labeling him that is NHL Edge, and JR tweeted this out on, on uh, J.P. Rutherford on Twitter. Um, he tweeted out the, the the picture off of NHL Edge that I looked at. Now, he interpreted it as seven goals kind of in that power forward crease area. I added the other two because they were breakaways and they were shot right on the faceoff dot. But regardless, seven or nine, all of his goals, goals have come in the area that the Blues label in the house, which is right around the goaltender. It's the high danger zone area. You can find shooters. You can find playmakers. It is hard to find young guys who are willing to take the beating and be a power forward. And Jake Neighbors has established himself as one of the young guys who's willing to do that on a consistent basis. Yeah, and it's you mentioned it being like a unicorn. It is tough to get guys to be like that, play that style of hockey. Why? Because it sucks. It's going to the front of the net where there's a bunch of tree trunks wanting to cross-check you and prevent you from getting there. But some guys have to do it. And you can make a great living in the NHL by doing so. And I, I said this earlier, and I, I think it's true. Man, I think if Craig Burby went into a laboratory to make a hockey player, he'd probably make Jake Neighbors because you always need somebody that's going to go to those dirty areas, be willing to go get those rebounds because it's tough to score from the outside. Man, NHL goalies are too good. You have to have a wicked wrist shot or an incredible one-timer. And as we've seen, having an incredible one-timer, there's not that many guys that have that as well in the National Hockey League. So it is a good thing that Jake Neighbors is not just molding into being a power forward, but molding into a guy that's going to go score goals for the Blues. You know, if he was just kind of a 10, 15-goal guy, like, okay, that's, that's a really good thing. Like, you need those guys on the third and fourth line. He's looking like he could be more like a... 20, 25, maybe 30 on a really good year. He's really starting to raise the ceiling as to what I think expectations are going to be for him, not just this year, but in years to come as a St. Louis Blue. Well, and it benefits this team massively, too, to have him at the top playing this well with Robert Thomas. You're talking about a top six winger uh, that the Blues have been really searching for. But on top of it, you're also looking at a guy that's got the responsibility factor as well. Late in the game last night, up by two, uh, Craig Berube and the staff opted to put Jake Neighbors on the ice late in that game over a Jordan Cairo. That's massive respect for a young player to get that type of responsibility. So they'll be back at it. We'll see what 
what Jake Neighbors looks like uh, tomorrow night. The Blues will take on the Arizona Coyotes. It'll be an 8 o'clock puck drop. I've got your first community credit union pregame starting at 7 o'clock. Great job by Grant Francis helping us out while BK is out, of course, for Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Alex Ferrario. Thank you so much for with us on our YouTube channel at 101 ESPN STL, brought to you by the Air Alliance team to ENB Granite Studios here at Centene Community Ice Center. We'll talk to you on Monday. The Fast Lane coming up next here on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.